podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bar- Barbless. I almost said Barfless again. <laughs> barbless Fly Fishing. I say it every 10, ten episodes. Uh, the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Alderson. I got Nick Hanna in the room. Nick, what's up? Hey, how we doing? So who do we got today? Yeah, a special guest um, all the way down from Reading. Uh Mike Mercer. Mike, how we doing? Doing well, thanks. Thank Easy you, drive. Thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. The man, oh. the, man the myth, the legend. <laughs> We're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Driving down the highway 99 gauntlet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, we got I want, a ton of questions mm-hmm. for you. We're just going to, you know, I kind of want to talk about, you know, how you got into the industry, um, a little bit about fly tying, a little bit about the travel uh, industry. I know you're a big part of all that. Um, first and foremost, I, I, some of our listeners might not even know you, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to read a quick bio that's from the Reading Fly Shop. I, I sure. thought it was pretty cool, and I, I, whoever wrote it, I think, did a fantastic did. job. I stole a little for, from it as well. <laughs> so my, Mike Mercer is one of the guy, one of those guys who gives the world around him his full, undivided attention. Imbued with the grace and tireless in his long life pursuit of fly, of fish on the fly. He's a danger to fish everywhere and an unmatched authority when it comes to honest, objective advice about the great fisheries of our planet. In 1978, an 18-year-old Mike Mercer became the first employee of the fly shop. At that time, a ragtag, one-room, hole-in-the-wall with a few hundred flies and a couple uh, rod outfits for sale. And in no time, he came, came to his own in the fly fishing and fly tying prodigy as a fly tying prodigy. Spinning out tips and flies for waves of California anglers streaming through the shop on their way to NorCal's famous trout waters. As he began to guide on Hat Creek and Fall River, his reputation as a revered and highly skilled angler grew. People sought out Mike's advice because it was the best you could get. In his 20s, Mike became Mike began to publish an ever-expanding number of fly patterns, his poxyback mayflies, stonefly nymphs, zinwing caddis series, as well as a maraud of dry fly, sculpin, leech, and mouse patterns, quickly became a standard of trout getters all over the West and later abroad. His particular genius with flies lies in innovation in seeing with the mind that will work and then realizing it in the vice. I want, we'll talk about that yeah, in, in sure. more. process there. As a writer, Mike has a natural, easy-to-understand style, and a generation of fly anglers grew up in Mike's regular articles in Fly Fisherman, uh, the magazine, and throughout the fly fishing press. His love of fly tying culminated in the 2005 best-selling book, Creative Fly Tying, in which Mike guides the reader through his most famous patterns, as well as his approach to creating these patterns. For much of the 80s and 90s, Mike was the fly shop's retail store manager, overseeing the first boom years of the shop as the national catalog business grew exceptionally. During this period, Mike also began to make annual pilgrimages to Alaska, fishing and exploring the deepest corners of the most far-out waters. In those days, 
the fly fishing travel community was very small. Everyone knew everyone. And Mike Mercer's calm, joyous, ethical approach helped solidify many of the partnerships with Alaskan outfitters that the fly shop proudly maintains today. In the late 90s, Mike began to travel more extensively and further afield to Chile, Argentina, Tierra del Fuego, Kamchatka, New Zealand, and all around the tropical salt world. His in-shop focus today is to share his incredible wealth of fly fishing knowledge and firsthand experience with our customers as they plan their own fly fishing adventures. Like all travel specialists, Mike stays up to the minute or second with all our destinations, but keeps a very special area of extra expertise. There's no one that knows more about Alaska and Chile, period. And it is one of our most objective and valued judges when it comes to honing in our, our new overlooked fishing destinations around the world. But above all, Mike is the nicest person in the world. If you agree, if you don't agree, we'll eat a number eight gold, gold bead by a epoxy backstone fly. <laughs> Give Mike Mercer a call or send him an email. I thought that was great. Who, who wrote wow. That that reminds me how old I am, <laughs> and that I apparently owe someone a, a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, it was a pretty in-depth bio. It feels like yeah. I don't even need have any questions. So thanks for coming in, Mike. All right, I'll see you next week. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I guess I hadn't read that. <laughs> That's pretty. You know, who, you know, who wrote it I there. Can't remember no? who? No, I don't. That's horrible. I, I like the, the part about eating the golden. Stone. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> That's probably my boss Mitchell. Like that sounds like something he would say. He would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, um, I, I know we ha I have a lot of questions, but tell us how, how you got in the industry and, and where it all started for you. Well, you know, I grew up just as a little kid, like four or five years old. Um, my father was in the ammon industry and then he was in the bees. And um, so in the, in the summers, my mom and my sister and I would go up and we'd tent camp on Hat Creek, um, like where Cave Campground is now. And so we'd be there for a month or two at a time because he would come back from Nevada with the bee truck. We'd see him for a little bit. He'd go pick up bees and go back. And so it was just a way for us to see him more. Mm -hmm. And so living on Hat Creek all that time in a tent, um, I was a five-year-old kid. I had to do something. So my mom got me one of these little Mickey Mouse fly, uh, not fly fishing, but a you know, bait fishing rig. And so yeah. I started fishing, catching fish. Pretty soon the the hatchery guys knew me by first name and they come here, kid, come here, come here. And they'd shove everyone else aside. Okay, I'm gonna dump these here, cast in right away, and they'd be shielding these fish for me. And so I was a very young age, I loved to fish, and then I moved back to the Durham area where I was grew up but you know, in my between like five and ten. And um fishing like ditches out there, you know, just hoping for a squawfish, anything. <laughs> and back in those days, you could ride, your kid could ride his bike anywhere and be safe. And yeah. so we did a lot of that. And and um, and then we, life took a fortuitous turn and we moved into, kind of into town uh, where my folks still live on, on uh, West Sacramento and next to Big Chico Creek. And so at that point, I was 10 then, and it was like two years there where I, I still wasn't fly fishing, but I've, during the summer, I literally fished every single day in the summer. My friend Craig Falk and I, we'd meet bikes, we'd meet about 8 in the morning, we'd take our lunches, we'd go, and we knew every inch of Big Chico Creek, like from, um, you know, from Lower Park down to almost to the river. Wow. And um, so and we were like, we were just deadly with with uh, so you're the reason small mouth. No, there's no fish in that creek anymore, huh? <laughs> uh, maybe I doubt that. Well, what was in your bag besides a pitchfork? <laughs> we were big on night crawlers. <laughs> <laughs> same, same difference then. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly right. So anyway, so so about 
I did that. And then about when I was 12, um, I, my mom signed me up for a, a YMCA class here in Ritten Chico. And um, a guy had volunteered. His name was John Andrews, is John Andrews. Um, and he'd just gotten back from the war and his Green Beret. And he kind of wanted to integrate himself back in society a little bit. And just kind of, he was going to, in the Chico State. And, and um, he volunteered to be you know, a uh, YMCA instructor for kids. And so it turns out not only did he work with us, you know, playing soccer and baseball and stuff like that, but he loved to fly fish. And so he would take some of us and, and go up to some little streams and lakes around, take us fishing, camping. And so he introduced us to fly or me specifically and a couple of other guys to fly fishing. And a friend of mine, Steve Rune and I, who were kind of inseparable at that time, we fished everywhere and we started just to do more and more fly fishing. And so that's kind of where it first started for me. I just, I never forget the first time I was fishing Chico Creek, of course, fishing for bass, small mouse. And I, and I had a, a, a casual dress nymph. And I remember just like, it's like so vivid. I cast in this little pool and I saw about a 10 inch smallmouth come over and stop and look at it and eat it. And when he ate it, let's make my life just end. It's like, no way. It's, he ate something that wasn't a night crawler. It's like, no chance. So it's really, it was exciting to me. So That's anyway, rad. from from there on, I um, I started a little fly shop in my parents' basement, which seems so odd now because I build <laughs> rods, fly rods, and um, um, sold type flies and stuff and sold in my basement. Had magazines even and People would come down into what essentially was my bedroom, <laughs> and I'd talk to them and sell them stuff. And um, How old were you when you were doing that? That was uh, like 16, 17. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. And um, and so, but in that, just before that happened, there was kind of a, a, a period of time in there, like we talked before, Nick, about where um, I kind of, I didn't realize at the time, but but there was a guy in town called Walton Powell, of course, which all Chico kind of knows Walt Powell, his wife, Erlene, his sons. Um, and so I got a job there, just, just kind of like sweeping up stuff. No, no real, nothing to do with the rod building mm -hmm. per se, but except just cleaning up. And, but at the same time, uh, Walton's wife, Erlene kind of took me under her, her wing and said, Hey, you want to learn to tie flies? And I'd started, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And it was so cool because Erlene was just so sweet and so nice. And, uh, you know, Walton would be grumping around and, and she said, go do that. And, I'm gonna, <laughs> and she took me over the table and she taught me how to tie the Clyde fly and a couple other different patterns that were really standard back then. And, uh, just, it was really, um, it was, it was changed. I mean, it was, um, memorable to me. It's like, I didn't, she was just a nice lady, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. looking back and I'm like, that was Erlene Powell, you know, but at the time she really did take, um, the time and teach me some tying. So. so was she just always kind of sitting there at the desk and, and with materials kind of all over the place? Um, and, that was and just, my, yeah, that was my perception. Cause yeah. I don't know what, I mean, I was there a few hours a day or something, yeah, you know, yeah, but, yeah. but she was there usually and I'd clean up or something and she'd come on, we'll learn to learn to tie a fly. So she would teach me how to tie a fly and, and, um, so were there like live chickens running around that you would, you'd go pluck the feather off of or <laughs> no, nothing quite that. <laughs> and, and apparently I've, I've been told she was like a really, really good tire. She's very right. clean. Yeah. Looking back and what, yeah. what I know now is that, yeah, her flies were impeccable and really clean. Yeah. And, you know, we were tying with NIMO and stuff that wasn't, didn't really conducive to clean flies, you know, and, but very she, hers were, and, yeah, and, exactly. And just kind of rough, big heads, but her flies were pristine and really, really little works of art. And so you basically got t taught fly fishing by a green beret. 
and yeah. then got, got <laughs> fly tying instruction by one of the best people in yeah. the industry at that time. At that time, yeah. That's I, crazy. I, I just wandered into stuff, I guess. That's pretty cool. <laughs> super, super lucky. So, yeah, and then there was also, a, there was a short period of time there. I worked at a place, used to be here, called uh, Journeys in fly, fly, um, Tackle Shop, basically. And we did, we sold both fly fishing and spin fishing gear. And so Dave Stanwith and, and the, one of the owners there also kind of took me in under his wing and said, hey, this kid's a, he's crazy. All he wants to do is fish. <laughs> and so he would bring me fishing and he'd teach. He taught me how to do the double haul and, and uh, just little stuff. So really fortunate growing up in a little town like Chico to have these people, this really very kind, nice people who um, had their own lives, but yet took the time to, to spend some time with me. Denton Hill, another guy that really mentored me. And it was a great, great guy here in, mm-hmm. in Chico. So I feel very fortunate. And so to be just be a kid, all I wanted to do was fish. I kind of landed right in the right place. Um, Sounds like it. You know, and there's yeah. odd things. You know, you'd be fish. I'd be in Journeys in Tackle Guide, and Lonnie Waller came in on there one day. <laughs> well, you went to Chico State. Yeah, and and he was mm. a furniture mover. Yeah, he yeah. was moving furniture and stuff. Yeah. And my Dave Stanwith, the owner, was an old friend of his. And so I got Dave said, "Hey, Lonnie, meet Lonnie, meet meet Mike." You know, so I got to meet him. So, yeah, I mean, I've known Lonnie for a million years now. I just kind of like in Chico, really, as a little. Well, as a, I was little. thinking about it. I was trying to think of the names of the people that have kind of come through here. Yeah, you, know, you got names like John Sherman, you know, sure, Justin yeah, Miller. Absolutely. I mean, yep. there, there's some, um, you know, John Bryan, Larry Bluck, yep. you know, Press Powell. It's a lot. It, it just keeps going. I mean, there's just right. a, and Zach Thurman, yep, right? That's of course. Now, that's now with you guys up right. there. I mean, it, it just it's pretty neat that um, this community's been spitting out some some of the really you know, yes. professionals. What do you guys think that why is that? Um, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I think that like when I remember back when I was a kid, um, the the um, Chico Fly Fishing Club. They started. I mean, they had meetings right here at California Park. I remember back that's forty five, forty eight years ago. Um, and they were very um, encouraging to young people back then. I mean, I'm, there was a lot of factors, obviously, but yeah, I can't, I can't. Back when you know the Biakis and stuff were were really involved in it, I can't discount the fact that they really did. They were very active with youth, and I was mm-hmm. one of them. And and mm-hmm. and so I, I saw a lot of young people got excited about fly fishing. Remember, this is way before video games and stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, you know, kids were doing stuff outside, and and they really tried to funnel you know, a lot of young people tuned to fly fishing. And, um, so there's, there's different reasons, I guess, but you're right. There's always been a culture of fly fishing and I guess we're near a lot of great fly fishing. But when I was a little kid growing up, the hat creeks and fall rivers and McLeods were kind of those things were just out of touch. We'd have a fish out there once a year or something. And it was like amazing. Um, but really we were fishing deer Creek and mill Creek and, you know, a lot of local stuff. And, and, uh, so we were, and those were great fisheries, but they weren't like the ones up North. And, uh, but eventually we kind of all started fishing those two. So. How did Deer Creek fish back in, in, in your, in your day when you were a kid, like in your teens? You know, my, my, it was my favorite spot in the world was Deer Creek Meadows up where 32 yeah, and 36. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, nobody fished up there. They all fished down the Canyon. Mm-hmm. And so we'd go up there and we fished like little, uh, orange palmers and by visibles and some of the stuff that was hot back then. And it was mostly brown trout and browns were kind of hard <laughs> to find. And so we were catching these jewel-like browns that were anywhere from 10 inches up to about three or four pounds, <sighs> kind of like Yellow Creek in its prime, right? And so you'd go up there and walk through this pristine little meadow and catch these beautiful brown trout, occasional rainbows. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, that and the feather up around um, 
well, above Polga and, and some of the areas up there, they used to plant browns. And so we'd go up there and catch really nice big browns. Mm-hmm. But that was a little more artificial because they were planted. The browns in Upper Deer, I mean, they were like still natives. They were beautiful. That's so cool. So, yeah. It's interesting what you were saying about the um, about people trying to get the youth into the industry. And, and it's almost like they saw that that was the future, right? And, yeah. And video games kind of have, have gotten over. in the way yeah. a little bit <laughs> of that. Right. And it's neat to see – and I'll – curious of what your thoughts are about this it's neat to see organizations like cast hope you know yeah, bring absolutely. bringing kids and in, back into it um there's just so much for them to, you know to do now it's hard it's hard to, oh, to yeah. put them down but what, what's your thoughts on that with the industry and where we're at today are you seeing kind of more more and more kids getting involved or is it i yeah i mean i'm a huge fan of ryan's i mean that's, that's such a great organization right. and he does so much good yep. i am and it's, everyone does that's involved with it yeah um i think that I think that there's a million kids poised and ready to get into it, but it's very hard to break through the the you know the the bulwark of of, of video games and indoor and you know the stuff mm-hmm. that's taken such a foothold. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll tell you that when we have like in the fly shop, we have our kids camps. Yeah, and very very popular. Oh, oh, very popular. And over the years, you just see these kids; their our eyes are open. You physically watch their faces when you show them how to catch a fish or walk with them around in the woods. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I remember we had one group of inner city kids once said some of them never seen stars and they were just, and this is our camps up by behind Mount Shasta. And it was just, they were blown away. And so I think that, I think that the desire for kids, even though they may not realize it is still strongly there. Every time I bring a little kid out somewhere, I mean, they love it. Mm-hmm. They love running around, getting wet and catching pollywogs and, whatever you know and so that's like innate um but our society doesn't really seem to push people or kids that way they're directing them in different ways and mm-hmm. so i it's there but how to when we reach them in our small way at the fly shop as best we can and yeah. personally and stuff but yeah it's it's there i mean not change kids haven't really changed it's still inside of them but they just have to have mentors to bring them out and get them into the woods so they can experience it. So, and then every once in a while, a Mike Mercer, a Zach Thurman pops out of those, those, <laughs> yeah, those groups does. and okay, just cool. takes, exactly. takes right. it on, right? Right. Exactly. It's a good, it's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. When you, so when you were, you we're talking about kids and getting them into the industry. Um, when, when I, th- when I was coming into the industry, I, I always remember walking into the Chico fly shop and there'd be somebody just like, kind of you experience somebody mm-hmm. sitting at the fly tying table yeah. tying flies it could and it could have been uh, just a guest you know right. not even an employee or anything but somebody sitting there and there was always a kind of like a rapport or conversation going about a fishery over here or fishing and it was kind of a almost secretive you know yeah. sometimes Classic. not all the times yeah but um it, it's interesting uh, do you ever think about that like with the reading fly shop or you know kind of bringing back something like that. I was just thinking before you came over, how cool it would be if I walked into the fly shop in Reading and there was a, a desk there, a flight with fly time materials mm-hmm. and somebody's, you know, somewhere for people to hang out, you know, right, and yeah. does that, does that make sense or oh, yeah, we have thought about it. It yeah. just from business standpoint, it doesn't always make sense. Right. The but, retail space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it is cool. Absolutely. I mean, that is part of our history, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like you say, when we think about going into a fly shop, and you're right. I mean, some parts of the secretive part about that you mentioned was kind of classic. You know? Yeah. And now we're dispensers of information, so we don't want secrets, you know. But, <laughs> but, um, but you're right. It, 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 we all remember that going into shops and seeing that kind of ambiance, and and it was it was cool. So I, it could happen. It just 
it just from dollars and cents point doesn't always add up. But right, it, they, yeah, they should put you in a big box, like a, <laughs> like a plexiglass box with right. a with a hook, right? And then like one of the the grab hooks, yeah. And then you have the game, and you tie the fly, right? And then whoever get you put the quarter in, you got to grab the fly off the vice and then drop it in. Because <laughs> it'd be grabbing my head. I always so. have one weird shower thought on every episode. And that was it. That's it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that plexiglass box. I don't know. <laughs> so what what took you up to the fly shop in Reading? Um, a truck. Now it sounds like a stupid glib answer, but <laughs> but it's actually there's something to that. Um, it, so one time I was going up to fish. I had my little shop in 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 Chico and in my my parents' basement, and I was going to Butte College, and um, I heard there was a new fly shop opening in Reading, and that was in '78. And so I was going up to fish Hat Creek, and so I thought, well, I'll stop in. So I stopped in, and I was like, even though it was like a little dinky thing and a little, little about the size of this room, you know, it, it was still a real fly shop as far as I could see. And um, so I was kind of blown away, and so I was looking around and talking to the owner and and stuff, and trying to impress him with my knowledge, which wasn't that much, but back in those days. And um, is this Mike, Mike was, Michalak, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, I got ready to leave. I was in there for like two hours, just like ogling everything. And I was getting ready to leave. And he said, "Hey, kid, uh, you want a job?" <laughs> and uh, so I said, "Yeah." So I went home and quit college and shut closed down my shop. Whoa, and, and, <laughs> that's ballsy, Jesus! And I said, "You might want later." It's like, why did you hire me? He says, "Cause you had a truck." Because <laughs> we were going to a trade show, and I needed somebody with a truck to haul all the stuff down to San Mateo, so we could oh, do, boy, sell stuff. Funny. And so that was kind of a truck that brought me there, and and um, yeah, and so that kind of started it, and. You know, the first years I was um, really a guide more than anything. The first mm-hmm. five years I guided. Um, then I went into the retail part of it and was the manager for a long time and then finally to travel. But, yeah, in those old days it was a truck and, and kind of into the place. So. It, it, I think about it. So that's 78 when, when 78, you yep, did that. Exactly. And, and just how much has changed you oh, know, yeah. from, you know, if you start going to deck, just yeah, why don't, now. I'd like to hear just decade over decade how, what you know, what the <laughs> – what do you think were the key changes in, in say the eighties versus the nineties versus the two thousands? Yeah, you know, it's um when long you know, when Mike Mitchell started and, and his partner Brad Jackson started the, the short shop years ago. I remember Mike tells a story, you know, he had a successful pharmaceutical sales position. He was, you know, doing well for himself. And he said, nah, I don't like this. I'm going to start a fly shop. And everybody's eyes would glaze over and they said, you know, what's a fly shop? I mean, no one had heard of a fly shop back then. And so it was just kind of unusual then to even to even start something that was so odd, you know. And so, but then as in the eighties, it started getting some some a little bit of traction. And I remember some of the, the and Mike always had the vision to do travel. Mm-hmm. And so back then there was limited options. There wasn't that many places that were really up and running for for fly fishing mm-hmm. for lodges and stuff. So there was a place or two in Alaska and. Here, here and there, and guys like Denton Hill, who was here, of course, and he was really a, a pioneer, um, um, really going, finding and you know, exploring a lot of really what we consider at that point very crazy remote places, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which are now today just kind of like run-of-the-mill places, but they were like the first guys to do it. So anyway, so that, you know, in the 80s, we were really already starting to set uh, the, the foundation for a lot of travel sales and that sort of thing, and um, that you look at that today and it's a major driver for the fly shop. It's mm-hmm. like a big part of it. So that's changed a lot. Um, in the eighties too, they'll, you know, everyone was doing tons of, of, uh, sports shows 
And it was a big thing. And like for us, we just bring stuff there and sell it. You know, mm-hmm. it was yeah. a great income. Way to source. get rid of it. Yeah, the inventory. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And um, now it's, you know, shows are kind of, they've kind of, they won't say they've run their courses. They still have some really good value, but. Um, a lot of travel industries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the travel companies that are yeah. in there. And it's just not the, it's just so different than it used to be. Yeah. Um, is it, is it. That there's not as many vendors selling hard goods, and it's mostly travel, like he's saying. What do you? What, um, what's the main difference? Yeah, to some extent, that that is. I mean, Probably the, the online, the, you know, piece, you know, yeah. the ability to get things elsewhere. You know. True, online is huge, and it's just those shows are expensive, right? Yeah. And so we used to do everyone there was because it was just well, they weren't expensive, and you know, we were always a pretty big player, and so people knew we were going to be there. They'd come, and now it's like we don't do them all. We, you know, we're pretty, and so. Yeah, part of it is that there, you know, there's not a lot of hard goods there. A lot, a lot of people come there and look at tri- trips and stuff like that. They may or may not buy them there, but um, so it's for a lot of us, it's not about selling merchandise anymore. It's really about selling trips or um, you know just making connections with people, mm-hmm. and so then hopefully they'll come back and 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 then give us a call. And, um, but yeah, it's shows are just really different, and everybody keeps trying to come up with a new formula for shows. I mean, the show the people that are doing shows. I don't know. I, I haven't seen a lot of really new stuff out there, but um, but yeah, they're, they're they still have value for sure. But anyway, I just I brought that up because mm. that was some, that was kind of big in the eighties. You know, shows were a big part yeah. of what we did. And is that when the catalog rolled out? Too? Yeah, it was yeah, right we, there? exactly right. We started yeah. in mm-hmm. about seventy nine or eighty something like that. It, it was just a time when you either had you bought advertising, which was prohibitively expensive, or you had a catalog program, right, right. or somebody physically came into your shop. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. There wasn't all these options that yeah. there was. And, and I remember when we first started, like in the 90s, we first started to think, man, we, maybe we might have a website. You know, maybe we had to start doing this stuff. And it was like, I don't know. You know, I mean, there's not that many people that have them. And, and um, so when we finally did it, we realized we, we, what we realized, we didn't know what we were doing. And it took us a while to get up to speed with a lot of the, with that stuff. And now it's invaluable. Right. Although it is interesting. It's, it's it's different, you know. We're all a lot of us have been here a long time. We're kind of old school, and we say, well, you know, it doesn't work like a lot of the stuff that we used to do. I mean, it's not like immediate gratification. It's not like you immediately know if you scored a win or loss. Or a lot of us just keep keeping the ball rolling and and um, and keeping your name in front of people and trying to do a good job. And and uh, but yeah, I mean, the, we as we've brought people on to to do just our website and the internet stuff like that. It's it's paid off in a, in a big way. It's 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 important for sure, um, but we still you know we still do a uh, you know a print catalog and stuff. We're about one of the last people that do that I think it anymore. Sh- it showed up in my house today. Yeah, that's in, awesome. In the mail. <laughs> in, in the it's good. It's good. I looked through it today. It's like it's really well done. Thanks. It's quite, yeah. Quite thick. Also it's changed it's a lot. Big. I mean, I remember it was long and narrow. Yep. You know, and um, we've tried different things. Real, do you guys do it in house? The whole thing? We do the whole thing. Wow. Yeah, we have that. Mike Mitchell used to do it all himself back in the old days with a Exacto knife on a little yeah. table and stuff. And now we have a full time graphics artist um, who works with Mike and. Then everybody pitches in and, and kind of does parts of it. But Mike and Gary, the the, the graphic artist, said they pretty much do it all, all in house, and then they send it to the printer. So yeah, I was I was waiting for you to in the '90s say something about a, a river runs through it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you know they make a big the deal the big deal about that, and deservedly so. We really saw. I mean, the the change was pretty incredible. Um, you can't ignore it. 
it made a big bump. Yeah. And so, yeah. And that was, uh, because we were just kind of languishing in moderate success and that happened and it did shoot us up for sure. All of a sudden it became a legitimate sport and people wanted to do it everywhere. People, what's this fly fishing? It looked cool. I want to do that, you know? And so suddenly we had not just more people, but we had more celebrities and stuff like that that wanted to get into it. So mm-hmm. it was amazing that people walked through the door you know, at the, oh, the, cool. the fly shop. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like going into Exxon station down the street or something. I was like, no, just a nothing little place. And, but everybody wanted a part of it. So, wow. yeah, it was funny. I, I mean, I remember uh, just, you know, I remember when I was a kid back when it was just starting to get a little bit um, popular. I remember guiding Peggy Fleming and her husband, the, the ice skating nice. and stuff. And, and you just you'd meet people like that, and just crazy people that 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 were really well known. It's like, what are you doing in fly fishing, you know? And but they enjoyed it, they loved it. Just like the same thing that attracts all to us, all of us do it. You know, it's just it's a beautiful sport, and and a lot of people find uh, comfort in it. I think it's, it's exciting. I, I remember working at the Chico Fly Shop and. Um the catalog would show up, you know, and I'd be sitting there counting flies for inventory, sure, you know, yeah. and, and you know, I hear, Oh yeah, they probably do, you know, million dollars in sales just from that, just from that catalog on flies alone, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sitting there thinking like counting all these flies. I'm like, man, that's a lot, that's of, fly, a lot of inventory. A lot of flies Trust me, we draw straws. Who have to ask to count all the flies? Does everybody <laughs> still do that? Does, no, not, you, <laughs> not everybody. Yeah. About 10 years ago we did. And now it's like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm, I'm done. I've had 40 years of that. It's like, it's enough, but no, we still do count them one by one you right. know and it's a huge job <laughs> you mentioned zach thurman that's he's kind of in charge of that so poor guy I, no i walked in there <laughs> yeah. the other day and he was that's what he was doing he was, yeah. he had, he was sitting at the desk counting yeah my, my my grandpa had a um, auto parts tr- distributor oh, so yeah. he would we, he'd get you Same know, bol- bolts in bulk sure. and then have to break them down into boxes oh. but it went by weight we could you know well, you that's true do, do, but flies now we tried that once we thought what we do by weight miserable nah. fail it's just, there's yeah. way, they're way different than you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was, I don't forget how long ago it was, but it was kind of when social media first started, there was a contest and some shop posted a picture of steelhead flies in, uh-huh. in the bins. Yep. And they're like, all right, the person that gets the closest guess to this, these numbers went, wins a handful of flies. Sure. Yeah. So I'm looking through everybody's guess, you know, and I'm like, I, I'm like, I can do this. I know, I know, <laughs> I've done many, I know how many yeah. flies are in there. <laughs> and some guy had guessed, you know, 1,500. And so I just, put the number, you know, just close to that. And, yeah. And, and, and you got up, it. Ended up winning. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. It's kind of cheating a little bit, but <laughs> how much, um, how much did the, cause you were the Reading fly shop and then now you have the fly shop. Actually, the, right. Yeah. We were never the Reading fly shop. Okay. For always the domain. Been, yeah. It's, well, the domain was, you always have that domain. Always the, been the, the fly shop. shop. Yep. Oh, you it's always a great have that. Domain. Yeah, it yeah. is. That's the, that was, when you did know, you guys get it? Was it in the late nineties? I think it was. Yeah, yeah probably. Been, yeah. And um, but yeah, but I mean, we're, that's always been our name. We never wanted to be Reading Fly Shop because you know we knew that we'd, you know, Mike, the owner, started the business in Reading because it was close to a lot of great fishing. But yeah. his vision was always to, and Brad's vision was always to, um, you know, be global. And yep. so didn't want to just be like Reading. He wanted it to be the yeah. fly shop, and it was pretty smart back then. I mean, no one ever heard of the fly shop. He got the name, and um, and then shortly after that, he bought a piece of property right on I five, which is where the shop is now, which has been fantastic. I mean, you got to see it going up and down I five. Yeah, I think so. didn't Miller say it's the toll bridge to get to the to the <laughs> right. uh, lower right. sack? Right. That's right. What what was the lower sack like? 
back then. I was, hor- it was terrible. It was terrible. That's were, what I've heard. Yeah, so yeah, those, I, I was going to ask, the first five years that you were guiding, were you guiding the lower soccer no, or no? No one no. fished it back then. It was, you know, it was, it had, we didn't know it, but with the copper mine effluent coming up from mm-hmm. our Keswick, Keswick and yeah. then the, the, um, the pulp mill downstream dumping dioxin into it and everything, the river was a, a, it was a hot mess. You know, it was, mm. we didn't realize it was the river, but. We also knew we, we didn't fish it because there was nothing to fish for. Really. Mm-hmm. What happened? Um, what changed? They cleaned up those things. They they cleaned up the the you know that Superfund site on the copper mine effluent. They they uh, base they, they they the pulp mill. They forced it to start you know stop dumping docks mm-hmm. and and all these all these things just came together. And then they put the cold water device on Shasta Dam. Mm-hmm. So suddenly we it was kind of like um, it was it was. Not real, but we'd kind of um, fabricated a fishery. Fabricated a, 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 what was there once before, yeah. because it's so interesting now that with every year of consistent cold flows, with every year of continuing cleaning the water, more bugs are coming back. That's the thing. Yeah, we got yeah. the bugs. BMDs so, and, yep. so yeah. there was there was really a restoration effort Absolutely. on that tailwater yeah. when there was wasn't really a lot of uh, people understanding what a restoration exactly. project was. Yeah, yeah, and then it grew. That, it grew, that it might be. Grew, a fun episode to figure yeah. out who was involved there and we'll, kind of talk yeah. about it. We've talked about this a little bit and the fact that, you know, the warm waters of the sack, you know, created steelhead. Yeah. The, the the trout can, we've had an episode about this. We yeah. talk about it a lot that the trout can either be a trout if it likes, if mm-hmm. it has the food exactly. and it's cold water. Right. And if it gets warm or doesn't have the food, it needs to boogie out yep. and become a steelhead exactly. basically. So it's interesting to see that. And you can kind of talk to the old timers about it, uh, you know, the number of steelhead in the seventies that were prevalent in the Sacramento river right. and, and to now, you mm-hmm. know, it's just that cold. All these fish are like, ah, I'm just going to hang out and eat caddis exactly. all day, yes. you know? Yeah. So when, when all the, when these toxins were happening on the mine and then the, the pulp stuff, was there no salmon spawn? Oh no, there was the salmon were still, I mean, they would just, I, I look back and see, remember that the numbers of salmon were like on the feather everywhere. There was a lot of them, you know? So they seemed to be able to mitigate it somehow, but the trout just there, and, and it wasn't there was no trout. There was like three guys in Redding that fished, <laughs> and there was back then a decent caddis population. The only thing that could withstand the, the you know, and so there was a couple guys, and they were catching nice fish, but not very many, and so it was kind of a novelty fishery. And most, okay. we didn't even bother with it. So the uh, the Keswick Reservoir, mm-hmm. um, I was told that the mine there's still some stuff in there from from the mines. Is that oh, not yeah. the case? But it's, they, they, it's still they, leaking, but. But they it's they put some filters in or something yeah. that's kind of knocked that down. Exactly, quite a they bit. basically scrubbed it, and so okay. yeah, it's still you can go up there and still see it's still coming, it's still leaking, but it's really scrubbed and, and filtered, and so what's coming in isn't is nothing what it used to be like. And hmm. and in, in, if you had an inclination not to believe them, you kind of have to because you see the insect life that's come back since they've right. done that. It's like startling. Suddenly we have salmon fly nymphs, which are the canary in the coal mine, you know, and mm-hmm. all these PMDs and, mm-hmm. and green drakes and, and golden stones and all these um, kind of frail insects, you know, they need fresh cold water. And, and, and they're just, they're coming back in droves. Last mm-hmm. year was the best PMD hatches I've ever seen on the lower sack. So it's good. Speaking of bugs, mm-hmm. how did, what, how did you get into fly tying that, that brought you to the place you are now? What, was there a story similar to that small mouth that, <laughs> that, took you into this world of fly tying? You know, it really not quite so dramatic, but um, when uh, John Andrews, the guy that, that, that started me fly fishing, he was a fly tire. 
and he, a little bit, he did a little bit, not not a lot, but he's kind of monkeyed with it. And he kind of got me um, hooked up with the Chico Fly Fishing Club, and they were they had they had fly tying sessions. Yep. Yeah. Denton Hill did some of those, and he did some sits tying, and and then Erlene. So it was kind of a cumulative thing that just kind of grew on me. And then because there were so few people tying flies back then. Uh, I started getting into it, and I started selling them. It was for a kid. It was a great way, yeah. you know. I made a ton of money cranking <laughs> shad darts for Journeys Inn in those days, you know, because everybody was, mm. shad was huge back then. Yeah. And so I thought, man, I could make some money. So I start cranking flies, and nobody was doing it. So, <laughs> you know, and so I just started doing it that way. And and it really wasn't until I started guiding, though, that I that I really had any interest in becoming creative about it. Before it was just cranking bugs for the bins, you know, and in place before I went to work at the fly shop. So what was the catalyst when you're on the, you're guiding, what was the catalyst that made you kind of be like, uh, maybe I need to look at this a little bit differently and uh, take different approaches. Hat Creek. Um, because Hat Creek, I mean, back then Hat Creek was amazing back, you know, just in the seventies and eighties. I mean, it was as good as trout stream as America has ever had. I mean, it was just phenomenal. There's tons and tons of 15 to 20 inch fish and, um, beautiful, healthy, wild fish, all the hatches in the world because the water was so good, but it also had a lot of pressure. And so as a guide, you have to produce and there's, I've just come, I've started realizing there's only so many fish my clients were going to catch on a pheasant tail nymph or, you know, a prince nymph and stuff like that. And I watched these bugs because they're, Hatches were so prolific, you could watch the insect stages happen right in front of you, you know. And, wow. and on a day off, I'd just go down there and just watch and fish and come back and watch. And um, and so I really saw what the fish sees. And that was my whole mi- mindset. I want to see what the fish sees. And obviously, our vision is way different and stuff. But I knew there had to be a trigger somewhere in those uh, insect life stages that the fish were coming to because I'd Keen seen in on, yeah. yeah, because you'd see them re- refuse even natural sometimes, or mm-hmm. you refuse, of course, our flies. And it's like, there's got to be something better. There's got to be something we're missing. I got to be able to improve that. So, um, probably my first big one that really that opened my eyes was the poxyback PMD, and that fly was startlingly effective. It was like, oh my gosh, and and so it, I usually tie when I create. I tie. Um, um, and when I, I, I come up with the pattern, I kind of like to take it and start because I'm kind of a complicated tire. I like to put a lot of steps, a lot of triggering features in a fly, but sometimes they're useless. They're just extra work. So, um, I'll tie a fly and I'll use it and it works. Okay, great. So then I'll take something away and see, does it still work? And then I'll take something more and I try to pare it down to its essence where it's still just as good as it was with all the steps. Um, but maybe a little less you know, it's like a reductive time. Exactly. Session. Exactly. And, and, um, sadly, a lot of times I start taking stuff away and it doesn't work as well, <laughs> but there are times when I learn stuff from the process. It's like, for example, like everyone always laughs at me. He's like, Mike, you put those little gills on your mayfly name, little number 18 mayfly name. What a waste of time. <laughs> I don't know, guys. I take them off. It doesn't work as well. Yep. And I mean, I, that's not just me believing it. It's like I just watch and fish and mm-hmm. for days. And it's like, mm, they don't, they shy off it. when. And so, and it's not a game breaker. It's not like you're not going to catch fish with, you know, the mayfly nymph doesn't gills. Not at all. But there's certain things that increase your odds of success. And back when I was a guide, it was all about success for yeah. me, which yeah. was why I eventually stopped because it wasn't really healthy for me. But but it did. Those five years taught me a lot mm-hmm. um, about insects and bugs and how fish react and how they live, how they, why they eat the way they do, and and so that was a, a huge growth period for me as far as fly tying goes. Um, and it was a time too, luckily when, um, 
fly tongue materials were really starting to burgeon and, and we're starting to get a lot more stuff on the shelves mm-hmm. that never used to have. We were always had real basic stuff. And mm-hmm. so just, I was like at the perfect storm. I worked at a fly shop that had all the fly tongue materials and I was guiding on a world-class fisheries and, and fall river and McLeod and all those, you know, Hat Creek. And so it was kind of a perfect storm of, for me, it's like of awareness and, and having the ability to take things off the shelf and experiment with them, try them. And, and uh, so it was super exciting. I remember as a young man, I can still remember how exciting it was when I'd come up with something new and try it and it worked. It's like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> like I couldn't believe it. It's kind of like watching that small lot. He's like, that's what I was like, whoa, that's, that's amazing. And um, so I was lucky to be in that era. As there's probably not as much to be discovered anymore, really. I mean, you tied them all. No, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, it's you know, there's been a lot more talented tires than me out there, and I always borrowed from them. I, I have some of my own, some of theirs, and yep. and um, it, 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 uh, it, 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 you look, and it's probably not as much, really. Still, back then, there was a there was a a, a, a wide horizon, right? There was a lot to be learned because people were still just using basics, mm-hmm. and um, so I was fortunate to grow up in that in that period. <laughs> You, you used a term, uh, trigger points, to describe mm-hmm. the flight. Um, can you explain that? Yeah, just back when I was guiding, you know, we'd be in the flats of Hat Creek, and we'd watch these fish just sip, sip they're eating them by PMD spinners. And you watch and watch and watch, and they eat and eat and eat and eat. And um, you'd put a cast over and over and over and let him to come up. No, come up. No, they refuse. Once in a while, you'd get one, but you knew you weren't doing something right. You were getting enough that you were, you know, you weren't skunked, but – and so I would start thinking, okay, what is it? Why are they refusing so many? And so um, I, I come, came to realize that there was this certain things in a design of a fly that seemed to engender confidence. And it would depend on the butt. It might be a nymph, might be a, a dry. But um, back then it was mostly nymphs, but there's some dries. Um, but there were certain things that the fish just seemed to, it made them confident. It's like, okay, I'm going to eat that. And you'd see it. It's like you maybe you tied gills on them for whatever it was. And it would be a trigger. It's like, it would be the difference between them looking close and rejecting or taking it consistently. And so I just call them triggers and it could mm-hmm. be, um, you know, like on the micro mayflies that put a little single strip of flash boo underneath epoxy on the top. And it looked like, you know, the, the air bubble air bubbles coming out. Yep. Exactly. That yep. I always thought if I, if, if there's, if I ever did anything right in flight time, it was probably that, or using a flash of a rib on that. And those, those are probably my two greatest contributions. <laughs> but I mean, that they really works, you know. So I, I owe a lot to Pearl Flash of But, but you know, little things like that made a big difference. Little triggers, mm-hmm. and you try to figure out what is it. You'd watch them eating, and and when you'd see them refuse something natural, or like, what is it? And then you realize, oh, that's a that's a diving may, a mayfly. It's diving down to lay its eggs. They're not, you know, they're not eating an emerging mayfly with the with the you know uh, 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 wing cases exploding. They're eating an adult that's swimming down. So you tie a little bug that looks like an adult that's swimming down. It, it works. It's like so you have to observe. I mean, people have said that over and over and over. I just read it recently somewhere else again, but observation is key. Super oh, key. Yeah, I mean, you have to. I know it was John Jurisak in the in Blue Room Flies. Um, he wrote an article years ago about observation, how critical it is, and boy, he's so right. It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you just go out, I mean, every day is different. Every, I mean, I've been on the Sacramento when I just, I was a hero, and I come out the next day and got nothing. It's like, but if you start watching, seeing, is it the weather, is it the water flows? It, you know, you can always scratch, scratch something out if you really 
you know, if you're aware of what's going on. And, and that's the neatest thing about fly fishing. You, you hit it on the head when you talked about the, you know, that small mouth coming over and looking at the fly and then eating it. Yeah. Right. And it's the same thing. You, you see these bugs doing what they're doing in nature. And then you can go to the fly tying yep. device, imitate, you know, try to imitate that best as possible. Right. Go back, do it all over again. That yeah. is just an addiction. That it is. You, you can't. Yeah. Very addicting. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And, uh, it's, it's funny because there's, and I was going to ask you about that. Just there's tires that tie, you know, that are artists, mm -hmm. yeah, right, right. They're tying and they're tying these beautiful flies. Like the and salmon fly community, yeah, ties those big ornate yeah, ones, like yeah. the Atlantic salmon yeah. flies, and mm -hmm. um, you know, then there's there's tie. Like myself, I, I like less is more. I mm -hmm. I, I want to just put something together that kind of looks close to it enough right. that I can you know tie a bunch up and then yep. get it back out on the water and, and catch some fish. And then there's those like yourself that have written will break it down above and beyond what the fly should even do. And then, you know, take those steps back. Right. That's really cool. I didn't know that. And that was actually one of our listeners questions. What, what do you look at in the design of a fly? Is it profile? Is it movement? Is it the material? Um, you know, how do you, how, and, and I've always taken a step back and Larry would tell me, he's like, you know, these Nick, these fish are in a, a dark environment mm -hmm. looking into a light environment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right profile, mm -hmm. right. That's yeah. the most important thing that you I, can. I do. would agree. Yeah. Profile's huge. You would agree with that. Yeah. It's, I remember fishing with Corey Williams who used to work at the fly shop. And one day I went out, we went out and fished a local Creek and there was a great little PMD hatch. And I had my fancy you know, 32 step flies and he had just red body <laughs> flies and he just spanked me. And it's like, Corey, let me see those things. <laughs> and they were the the profile was super thin, super. I mean, just thread on the hook. Yep. I mean, it was more to it, but that was the the abnormal profile, and it it made a believer of me. It's like I, I you know I can't just want to have just cram as many triggering points on a on a hook as I can. That doesn't always work. There's a there's some middle ground there. So no, yeah, profile's huge. And if you there too used to be in old days when when some of the big tying companies were first starting to produce for us. They had no clue of how to tie Spring Creek flies. They were all overtied and bulky, and and they all—I mean, ten million—they all looked perfectly the same, but yeah. they were not. They were all probably tied wrong, and so it took years mm -hmm. before we realized, before we got them trained to the point where they would get the profiles right mm -hmm. and get the really thin abdomens and you know the the nice wings and and just get it right. So yeah, profile's big. You talk sure. you talk about it, and I was watching you t tie the missing link mm -hmm. and uh, using the Antron to oh, you know, yeah. as and. Just sparse. Yeah, very sparse. Very sparse. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that. I never thought about it, but um, you're right. The the traditional flies, bushy, big, yeah, right. you know, skating on the surface. There was They did that a lot. You yeah, know, just absolutely. skate that fly on the surface and they'll come up and eat it. Exactly. But you did see a huge transition into smaller, more, you know, these are very just petite little flies. Right. It was like the hook, like thread on a hook. Yep, exactly. Um, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. And I, did synthetics... Help that? Do you think? I mean, so, yeah. I mean, my own tying, I do like half natural, half synthetic most of the time. I that's what I, I was going to ask. I, you. That's I, another question our listener was going to ask yeah. you. Do you do you prefer natural or synthetic material? Um, my gut wants to say I prefer natural, but the truth is, I like a lot of synthetics too. And yeah. So, um, I was heavily influenced by guys like Bob Quigley and Renee Harrop, who were on great um, streams, and and they tied a lot of pretty felt flies. You yeah. know, not real heavy body stuff, and and. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't use, I, I don't want a fly to look garish. You know, I mean, I love pearl flash. I love a lot of things. Pearl <laughs> flash is one of my favorites, but I like to use it sparingly. You know, so if I can tie a fly with seventy five percent natural and twenty five percent synthetic, I'm happy. 
Um, but I like a little flash in my flies, but, but a little. And like you mentioned on the, on the missing link wings, very sparse. Because, again, the fish, they're looking in the light, like I say, and they just see kind of a, a suggestion of sparkle and something that mm-hmm. hits, you know, breaks the water surface. And they don't see a big clump of, you know, <laughs> of material. And so it, What do you think that what's tribute to that fly being so effective? I think it probably because it, it looks like a lot of different life stages of a lot of different insects. Um, it's, I've often told people, it's like, it was a mistake. I tied it just to be a dead caddis on the lower sack because that hatch was kicking my, or that, that stage was kicking my butt consistently. And so I tied it and it was amazing. It's like, I did it. And then re- later I realized um, the mistake, the mistake was that it was much more than that. It's become my favorite mayfly dry, my favorite everything dry. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it just engenders that confidence we were talking earlier. They see it and they see the down wings. And if it's a, if it's a spinner fault, I like it. And if, mm-hmm. it's a, if it's a hatch, they see the up wing and the down wings. I had an article on it in Fly Fisherman Magazine recently that the picture, that the cover picture by Ted Fasiglia was pretty telling i, I mean, know it's i know i think i know what you're talking about the thing just bursting out of its its shock yep. and the, the way the wings were down on its side and this was yep. not a spinner but an emerger and it really kind of showed you how why that fly and it was after the fact i, I mean i'm glad i didn't see that fit picture first because i might have screwed it up hmm. but later looking back it's like wow that looks just like that you know and i didn't really know that i mean that's a moment that's rarely been caught on film ted did an amazing job but yeah just things like that the the down wings, the the body, which I thought was a dead, desiccated caddis body, just not just a little air stuck. That's why the flash boo. Turns out, I think that they most fish eat it as a mayfly dry, as um, as a shuck, mm-hmm. because it's got that very segmented look with the flash boo, mm-hmm. and then it's got the, the 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 you know the hard I use loon, it was loon a, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and so. You know, and and just this various things on it, and it sits low. I like it when it sits low in the water. I only dress the up elk wing so everything sits down in the water, and it looks like a dead bug too. And so it looks like emerges. It looks like dying bugs. It looks like, you know, I think it seems to work really well in flying ants and all kinds of stuff. I mean, that loom so, that loom material is, is awesome. I, it's you great. Know, back in the day, we would tie these PTs, and I would be tying the little fibers of pheasant tails, wrapping them around, and then right. they break. You know, and I'm <laughs> exactly. like, this Dang sucks. It. You know, like, what, <laughs> what can, what, how can I make it more durable? It only yeah. lasts a couple fish. How can I? Make, and right. So we started tying just wire around yep. as the body, exactly. you know, to make it a little bit more durable. But yeah, that's uh, I love that 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 poxy. Did I did I hear you right? Like you'll take you'll dress only part of the fly. Depending upon how you want it to lay in the water. Yeah, I'm really, really probably over fastidious about that. I just like I'm. Hmm. I do not want that floating to touch the down wings, for example, on the missing link. I only want it on the elk, and so and I think that sometimes I watch people and they're they just don't know. Yeah. And so they're careless. Yeah, they don't know right. they're careless. I was gonna say because my methodology is a you know a dime size thing of goop on my fingers and I just kind of crush it together and. You know, roll it up like a booger and then throw it out there. <laughs> <laughs> roll it out there. It floats. <laughs> <laughs> it's what you want, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just I mean, I so want that fly to be the yeah, way I designed that, it to be on the that water. That totally makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay. What, so, what's your favorite natural and favorite synthetic? Sorry. If you, um, favorite synthetic is easy. Pearl flash. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just like favorite natural. That's really, really hard. Um, oddly, I... I love a beautiful piece of of cow elk with uh, really like golden 
tips Interesting. Hard to, and just just this beautiful material i was waiting for you to say cdc or something <laughs> that's what i had yeah. written down cdc really? and, and ice dub i was way off oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i like ice ice dub's good but yeah more simplistic i guess and I mean, a lot of things, a lot of natural materials I, I appreciate. I've, I use, I probably use like a thousand turkeys, turkey tails over the years because I use, love that for wing cases on yeah. these. But yeah, I think a really pretty piece of cow elk, just perfect. Is, yeah, I love That's that. interesting. I wouldn't have yeah. thought you said that. I have to admit, I, I mean, one of the most productive flies when I was growing up fly fishing was your golden stone. Cool. I mean, I biot. always yeah. had the buyout golden stone. Yeah. yeah. I always had that in my box. And then all of a sudden I found the, um, you know, the Jimmy legs, the, the, <laughs> oh. the chenille and rubber Man, legs. I wish out. I had invented that one. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry to admit, it, but I it's don't. so funny to watch you two just geek out about flies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going, Nick's face, man, he looks like a little kid in a candy shop right now. It's hilarious. Well, he's just, his passion is bringing it. I know, I, it's I told, awesome, I told man. myself that I'm going to be, I'm gonna be going awesome. home after this episode and start tying, <laughs> yeah. tying a lot of flies, you know? Right. Um, but no, that that was one of the most productive flies I've ever oh, I've cool. ever fished. Yeah. I mean, all from locally, but to the Trinity, right. you know. I mean, yeah. it, it was it, it brings up another one, uh, the Psycho Prince, mm-hmm. just completely different, I think, than what you're used to tying. You're used to imitating and and, yeah. and really di- breaking down the science. Was well, very different, yeah. So this is, and the Psycho Prince. If and for your listeners don't know, it's the it looks like a. Um, uh, Prince nymph, mm-hmm. basically, but it's the ice dub is incorporated, right? Into mm-hmm. it. Exactly, square bright. So it's yeah. a bright, really bright fly. It doesn't really look like anything. I mean, yeah, is it like turbid, low light condition kind of a fly? Or? Explain, please. Yeah, I'm you know, <laughs> it's it's. I just kind of it's like uh, it's like one of my big theories on on mayflies and caddis is that like the bugs are are they're camoed, right? They're on the bottom, their tops mm-hmm. are always dark and mottled to match the stream bed. That's yeah. what the fish see, so they, they can't see them as well. Underneath, they're usually real bright, they're colored, they're lighter colored, stuff like that. So I've always wanted a lot of my flies to have turkey tail carapaces on the on the, on the abdomen stuff, so to imitate that, dark on top, light on the bottom. Because I figure when the fly goes down the stream, it lets go of the rocks, it's tumbling. Fish sees light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, and it keys on that, so it's trigger. Dark, you know, dark on top, light on the bottom. So... I just basically that fly was a, a something I came up with for really fast moving water, just like mm. something that's like my basic theory on steroids, just like something really dark and really bright, <laughs> and and a bit of a shameless um, ploy on just wanting to sell more flies, and it has the prince name. So, but it turns out it was actually you know really effective. It's for years been one of my biggest selling flies, which really? surprises even me. It's that like, purple prince has caught me a lot of. Has it? Fish. That's cool. Yes, I've almost never used the purple. Really. <laughs> I've used, I'm just such a, such a, you know, traditionalist. I use the orange most of the time, occasionally the blue and stuff, but the times I've used the purple has been for steelhead and I've done really well yep. with it, yep. but I haven't fished it much for trout. So it, it was weird. And it's, it's, maybe you can help me explain this, but you know, it's kind of like, um, your golden stone on the Trinity. And then it was the red copper John. Mm-hmm. And then it was, you know, and I'm, there's probably something I'm missing but no, I'm just you're trying right, to show yeah. you know red copper john and then the purple prince right you know exactly. like there's like these stages of absolutely like you, you nailed it. yeah, that, and it's it's super it's weird you know it's like the fish you're thinking we're, we're trying to outthink these things you know <laughs> but explain that i don't do you uh, you know i think that i i don't know if i can explain exactly but i know that for example when my my psycho prince came out my good friend who works at the shop john deets he just started selling it. He said, man, people, try this on the Trinity. You know, it was like brand new. <laughs> and so all these people were fishing and oh, man, they were just hammered fish. But, you know, they probably he could have sold them hair's ear. Maybe, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. But 
but there was there are certain trends too that I've seen that I've kind of tried to emulate with my flies. And that is we've also used a lot more small flies over there. You know, it used to be the the big stones, the twos, four, sixes, and then the goldens or the eights, and um, and then the copper john twelves. You know, and you've noticed this general reduction hmm. in size over there in the Trinity as a rule. And so when I was tying twelve and fourteen cycle princes, it was the right fly at the right time. I think doesn't mean it was the only right fly, but it just happened to be, you know. And so, and and now in the in a, in the Great Lakes, it's huge. I sell more in the Great Lakes than I do here. Really? Huh. Yeah. And so, um, but but that the same thing. They use small flies, but you need a small fly with a heavy hook that has some brightness that catches the fish eye. And as much as I use it for trout, it, it's proven to be a much more popular steelhead fly than it has trout mm-hmm. uh, over the years. And so. You know, I don't know. It's small. It's it's got a lot of flash for small fly. It's got the dark back again, which I really wanted. Um, but on the Trinity, I think you know, I I've experimented. And I've done really well hooking steelhead on eighteen and twenty nymphs. No problem. They'll take them. They they'll they'll run and eat them. Landing them. Like, you cannot get land them. So as a guide, yeah. it's useless, right? If you're a guide. <laughs> but it is interesting that those fish. They you know, it's imprinted on their mind clearly that when they were little, they were eating yep. nymphs, and so they've only been out two years or whatever, and they come back and they they'll still eat those eighteen and twenty nymphs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in for them for that a fourteen is still a big fly. Yeah. You know, and and so there's a there's a place there where, you know where. It doesn't. It's no longer realistic to do it, but like a fourteen is as a really realistic size. I think on a heavy hook, it'll it'll take fish that maybe will shy off a larger a red copper john. It's seen a lot of already. It's seen a lot of red copper johns. They have, nah, I'm not doing that again. And but here comes a little small fly, and it's like something in this little lizard part of his brain <laughs> says, "Hey, I remember that from when I was like three inches long," and and, and he eats it, you know. And so it's some part is just is just maybe size and stuff. It it may not always be. The, the 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 concept of the fly, you know, mm-hmm. what, how it's tied. When when you were talking about the uh, the psychoprints in the in the fast water and the color transition because it's tumbling, it's going right. light dark, light dark. Uh, do you tie clinch knots or do you tie loop knots into your your flies? Um, I'm old school. I still do clinch knots. However, okay. I will tell you that if I'm seriously streamer fishing, doing a lot, of, I mean, and not mm-hmm. cast and retrieve so much, that's serious too. But when I'm throwing streamers to tougher fish that are fished over where I want to get a nice tumbling drift and, and not dead drift, a swing, but I will use loops because it does give the fly just ultimate ability just to move and shudder and, and drop. And so, yeah. And I know a lot of guides who are Way better guides than I've ever been who use only loop knots. Yeah, so I totally mm-hmm. respect that. Yeah, just um, you're a trout guy, huh? I am. Yeah, I, I, mean, I do everything, but yeah, you cut me and trout comes out. I mean, I love saltwater. I love everything. Yeah, but you know, I'll go to the tropics and fish for bonefish and tarpon permit. I'll go up for like two weeks. I'm pretty much done. You know, I, I love it, but yeah. I'm ready to go to the mountains. You know, and I could go to the, I can go like I'm going to New Zealand in a couple of weeks. I could live the rest of my life there. You know what I mean? <laughs> that in the mountains with trout and, and I just, that's, I mean, Chile's probably one of my favorite places in the world just because it's so beautiful and relatively untouched and the culture is great. Streams are beautiful. They have also the trout that love to eat big, dumb dry flies. And mm-hmm. I mean, I just love every part about the trout experience. Um, yeah. So. It, well, just looking through your, all your flies, it's, it, um, one of the questions <laughs> that was asked is, do you even fish meat, bro? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, when, when I was younger and a guide, I fished a lot of meat. I mean, I, I was big on big sculpins and stuff. Like that. I love that. Early days in Hat Creek when no one was doing that. Mm-hmm. I'd go down the lower riffles down towards the barrier and fish big sculpins and uh, 
just hammer them. It was so, so cool. <laughs> And, and yeah, I still love to, like I do a lot of fishing in Alaska. So yeah, I fish a lot of big streamers, a lot of big flush, you know, and big dark streamers. And I love doing that for sure. Um, I've, my tying hasn't always gone that way. Um, I've done a little bit, but, um, for some reason I'm not as excited about tying that sort of flies. I'm like Kelly Gallup. He lives for it. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, it's, I love fishing that way, but for some reason the tying just doesn't excite me that much. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm happy using somebody else's. Good flies. Well, another listener question if you're down there. Yeah, well, I'm going to – it's so hard. I got so much things. I, I mean, can, we can talk about this stuff forever, right? Um, I was going to mention just real quickly that uh, I think that's the neatest thing about tying flies, going back to what you were saying about the small nymphs. Um, you can go, you know, grab a number 10 hook or a number 12 hook or a, instead of a 2488, a 2488 heavy. yeah. yeah. And tie some of these smaller flies on right. just a beefier hook. Really works. And because yeah. and that's the thing about California and the and these valley rivers and some of the fisheries is, you know, as much as they eat these small flies, yeah, um, to land some right. of these it's big tough, big right? trout and fish, you got to have a hook that's going to uh, yeah. hold up to them. So that's I think one of the the best things about fly tying for for me is you know to to be able to do that. Yeah, we're so lucky with the hooks we have today. Compared I mean, when I first, you, oh, I mean, there was like three hooks, right? And what do you think? Mustad made them all, but yeah. What do you think about the jig head um, um, style it's it, hook? I, I like it a lot. I mean, it doesn't lend itself to everything, obviously, but mm-hmm. one thing, I've got some new flies coming out right now, right now very soon um, from Umqua, and, and what I found about jig hooks is that they hook very well, in my experience. I get, with, with traditional hooks, I get a lot of grabs, and I, I, I'll miss a fair amount, and or I'll foul hook a fair amount. With uh, jig hooks, I tend to hook more fish that i see the the when i see the strike whether i'm short lining without an indicator or you know fishing an indicator i just hook more and mm-hmm. and, and like right there yeah exactly always right in the Button, right yeah right nose. exactly yeah. and it just seems like it gets them better it's a better angle to hook the fish apparently i guess um and so i like that a lot as far as tying on them kind of a pain right and, right you know i, I, don't, I don't know it, it's all right i mean but i do like the productivity they 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 uh, mm-hmm. they give you. I mean, it hooks well. So. Now, I thought it was going to be the opposite because you're kind of taken away from the gape of the hook. Yeah, you seems right? like it, right? And you would think yeah. you would lose out on that. Um, and it made a lot of sense when I started seeing them. I'm like, oh, kind of run along the bottom, nice right. and easy, and not snag up as much, or yeah, grab the chunk of grass that you're always pulling off potentially. But in theory, at least, right, yeah, you'd right. think. But I, I can only know what I've experienced. And, yeah. And yeah, so I mean, that is the one difference I've seen. I, I don't like the way they look as well, right. but who cares? I mean, they work, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, that's, that's the kind of the bottom line. So, but they, they, they're for real, for sure. They, right. They work. Yeah. What was your, uh, yeah. Okay. Extra. Okay. So this was from a, uh, Instagram follower at Joshua Oliveira. Josh, thanks for the, the, uh, question as a pioneer of epoxy flies. Is there any instances where he's dyed his resin? And if so, what? Does he use pigment color wise? He uh, Josh says I've had some mixed results with transparent inks, but not great. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I've I have tried it. Was un, was unhappy with it, and so I just stopped doing it. Having said that, you know a lot of the Loon products now they make it easier. The epoxy was a pain in the neck. It is a pain in the neck to work with. It's such a short window of opportunity to mix color and stuff and get it right and apply it the way I want it on the fly and. Um, Loon gives you a lot more breathing room, and so and then just hit it with the light, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing about the Loon product is that it does tend to run a little bit more, so you have to get the right consistency of Loon for what you're doing. But, um, but no, it's a good question. I thought it was going to be great, and for me, it, it wasn't great. The colored, so uh, I, 
it just didn't achieve what I'd hoped it would achieve. So I, what I've done then is used what I use underneath the the epoxy or the UV to to give it the effect that I want. Right. You know, so. There was one more from at Taco Fly, and you can probably guess what the question was. Uh, what do you like on your tacos? <laughs> <laughs> Lengua. I like langra. Really? Like really? Tacos. Oh, yeah. Lord, nice. People Lord. always make weird faces, man. There's a Gordo's in Reading I've and tried. it's a lengua taco. It's like, oh, it's the best. Gordo here in Chico is really good. Is it's it good? My yeah. favorite spot. Yeah. It's, I had it's face really tacos one time and almost popped. <laughs> oh, a lot of people don't agree with me. <laughs> face meat's not the best. Just to FYI, everyone. Is there a, is there a new material that's that's uh, got you all excited um, that's coming out or is out or that you've been working with besides um, like the loon that loon epoxy? Um, it, it, no, but there there is something, but it's not new. And that is, you know, for the last five years or so, I've really been a huge proponent of all things tungsten beads. Yeah, I mean, right. tungsten has changed my world because I hate split shot. When I was young, I was guiding. I loved it. I lived. I probably used a truckload full of split shot. In, you know, in five years, but. I've come to dislike it for all of obvious reasons, the way it affects the, the fly's motion, mm-hmm. stuff like that, um, and hang up all the time. And so Tungsten has allowed me to to use whatever size fly I want without split shot and get to where I want the fly. And so it's like, for me, it's, that's like a miracle. It's like, that's amazing. And so whether it be on a, the new jig hook or a traditional, uh, I think Tungsten beads has really made a big difference in the way I create and and you know type flies Hmm. um i still use brass a fair amount because you don't always want that much weight but there's times you do and it's a pretty big deal are you uh is is that application specifically for european style nymphing or just anything really is anything yeah so you'll just take the you're taking the weight out of the system and just going straight to the exactly classic like on a a trinity i mean i'll use i'll use one as the as the top fly i'll use one a larger that golden stone or an orange can or something like that with a tungsten bead and then i'll use a a little 14 or 16 nymph as the, the point fly mm-hmm. and um, also the tungsten and there's no need for a split shot and people have a hard time getting that through their heads and ah, that's not going to get down i guess i'm fine and you don't hang up you get a grab it's almost always a fish it's you not you know you're not um it, it just it, it just is such a cool invention that for me the little things right that's like yeah. tungsten really so you'll but, tie up several Different different size beads, absolutely with the same same colorway or whatever. Yep, yeah. and sometimes I'll tie like two 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 beads on a so fly. When you or... change a weight, you change a fly, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I'm kind of old school that way. And I realize it doesn't always work, but like from fishing indicator, I don't have a, I, I can't stand some of the indicators out there that you can slide because they're, they're plastic and they're so nervous on top of the water. They jump. They're always moving on the top. It's like a strike. You know, you're kind of jumpy all day. Yeah. And then I use yarn because it anchors in the water and it doesn't move. It's just like you get, if it moves, it's a fish. Yeah. Um, and it's just so much more calming for me to fish that. Um, and um, with that, with I can just adjust the the, the flies accordingly, you know, with, without split shot. Mm-hmm. And split shot really does mess up your drift. Sometimes... Sometimes it's necessary. I look at my guides on the lower sack, and there's times on the lower sack it's flowing fifteen thousand. You could put all the tungsten beads you want in your fly; it's not going to get where you need to get. You have to use split shot out of a boat. Fishing, you don't mm-hmm. when you're waiting because you're fishing different water. But when you're fishing the main current out there, you have to use shot. And, so. and also, I think um, in terms of like hitting a seam, mm-hmm. right? It just it's it's better to get to go with those point flies because yeah. you can get, you can just tuck it right into the seam Absolutely. you want. Yep. Where if you have split shot, it might go over, you, can, you know, six, eight inches. And, exactly. you know, there's, 
And it's just more, there's no latency in that system either. So it's just oh. a direct connection to the, the Very fly, direct. And, and to the fish. And it's immediate, right? I mean, yeah. it's like you get it out in the trout stream, you're yeah. fishing a, a short little real yeah. drop. Um, you, you need to get down quick. You just register way, way, more, way more strikes with it, just yeah. a straight, straight system. I, I, if we're out of a boat, uh, we, I do split shot or yeah, still, yeah. but if I'm on a stream, I rarely will have split shot on my system. No, I totally, yeah. we agree on that. It's totally, it's better without it if you can. Yeah. So what type of ice do you tie on? I tie on a Regal. Uh, I've tied on a lot nice. of, a lot of all the, all the years. Um, I like Regal cause it's super simple. It works. Um, the only drawback is if you tie like twenties and blows, even their mids jaws, those, grit, those uh, jaws are a little beefy. It'll yeah. it'll ping them out. Right. The hooks out sometimes. So right. you know, I might just keep a Dyna King around for that sort of thing. But I like everything about the Regals other than that. And just it just works for me. So, so you have one at your office, your house. You can pull out a cubby out of your back of your truck, and a vice <laughs> pops up that no, you can tie on. Or? Yeah, no, I'm pretty much. I'm either at home or nowhere. <laughs> so yeah, no, I still tie my living room in the roll top desk, and it's great. Yeah, yeah. that's what I, I was gonna say. It's my son, I just had a son. He's two months old, and I, so I have like fly tie materials all over right in front <laughs> of, of the TV right now with big hooks and stuff everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, this, can, this is only going to last a little bit Not longer. Not much longer. <laughs> I'm going to have to change my game. Yep, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you do learn to kind of. I have two daughters. I learned to adapt. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I've got. There's two more questions. They wanted to re- remain anonymous, and I also want to check the gram one more time just to make sure nothing came in. Sure. After we hit record. Sure. So the first question is. Uh, what's your opinion on the Shasta Dam raise? Um, you know, I'm the, like the least political guy you ever uh, met. So the, for me, the the jury's still out. My natural inclination is I don't like it um, because of things that inundates. Um, but honestly, you got to keep an open mind, I think. And so there could be possibly some advantages to salmon or disadvantages to salmon. And for me, that's probably one of the biggest things. Like our salmon um you know population is teetering on the blank brink and so um that's I mean, everybody's got their agenda right whether they want to raise or not raise but for me that's a big one it's like how is it going to affect the salmon yeah um so as more and more comes out about what the truth is about that mm-hmm. i'll have more of an opinion but yeah yeah we've got um one of the um engineers that's working on the project's going to be on in a couple weeks and we're going to yeah. get into it a little bit i think he he can talk to the biological opinion side sure. of it too he's got a big team be interesting to know, yeah. Um, okay, so the next one is uh, the top four patterns for Nor- NorCal. What would you absolutely have to have in your box? Um, top four. For um, Northern California, yeah. and then there's a follow-up from a different person. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, I guess if you just look what's mostly in my box, what I normally pull out, um, probably interestingly, um, not in any order, just the top mm-hmm. four, I would say, surprisingly, maybe a, a gold bead Prince Nymph. Nothing is... I get another one. I wish that the patch like, just hammers. Wish, man. It's, it's just, MC hammer. It's like they <laughs> never get tired. I was like, nope. are you fish stupid? <laughs> Everyone fishes that and they keep eating it. Um, my little poxy back golden, um, uh, PMD nymph with a, with a gold bead. That thing is just, I just go to that. It's probably unhealthily amounts of time. Um, um, other than that, the missing link, cause that's about the only dry fly I use anymore. Um, and past that, I guess, the rubber legs. Yeah, Damn, that's rubber legs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the the uh another another guy had a question. Hold on one second. My phone just locked on me. Hold on. Um 
This is at Fishing Kevin. He said, ask Mike, you only have three flies to fish on the lower <laughs> sack for the rest of your life. What are those three flies? That's actually easier. Yeah. I um, I would fish um, uh, uh, the, same, the, little, the little number 18 gold bead poxyback PMD nymph for, for all the mayflies pretty much. Um, there's a, a, um, a little fly that I don't know who came up with it, but we call it a Sacramento pupa. It's basically La Fontaine's deep sparkle pupa kind of thing. And, and for the, all the caddis, it's deadly. Um, although there's a lot of caddis that work really well there and in a missing link for all the dry fly hatches. So. Okay. Let me see if there's any more. There's one, I've got one here. Um, uh, it's kind of interesting. I was going to even ask this, but, uh, it, You've been in this industry, obviously, a long time. You've seen it go from the Model T Ford to yeah. the Tesla, right? right exactly. Um, I'm not trying to age. No, no, it's true. 40-something <laughs> years, yeah, 50 years. How, yeah. how do you think social media has played into the fishing industry as far as you know, pressure and putting pressure on fisheries? Have you seen it hurt them? Have you seen fisheries come back because of it? What, you know, I don't know. I think that, you know, you hear the whole concept about people naming names and, and it ruining streams. I think it's very valid, but I think it's very valid in a relatively small amount of cases, but they're very high uh, profile Impacts. cases and, and, and they're very, it's very legitimate. So if you have a small fishery that's frail, it's kind of, you know, kind of teetering on that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's in, or just by nature, it's not going to take much pressure. You know, common sense is say, don't put that on social media. You're going to ruin it in a week, you know. So, yeah, that you get people that can't control themselves in that respect. That's not good. But a lot of places, too, I mean, like a lower sack and stuff like that. I mean, sure, you could hurt it, but it's a big body of water. You know, you could bank fish. Like, I prefer to walk away the lower sack. And, hmm. you know, you could put a whole bunch of people on that river all the time, not get infected all that much because there's so much water you can't reach right. with the boats. But even, I mean, like, we put a lot of boats on the lower Sacramento and the fishery is, doesn't seem to be a problem. You're not getting a bunch of fish with lip sores. You're not getting a bunch of frail fish. You're not getting less fish. If anything, we're getting more and bigger fish. Um, you know, a big body wire like that. I, I mean, it's fun. It's like part of the camaraderie of fly sure. fishing. It's like, man, I was up fishing lower sack and I fished this fly and it was so good. And like, go for it. I mean, and that's, you know, um, you know, from a, from a strictly, you know, what do you call it? a, a it's good for me, you know, perspective, you know, from a selfish standpoint, you know, it's been great because it gets word out about, about flies that are working stuff and people call and order those flies, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that, I mean, selfishly, yeah, I mean, I like that part of it. So I do see the downside and the downside is dark, but I don't see it being that pervasive. It's like if a few people would kind of like back off, you know, their enthusiasm for a couple of little small creeks that can't tell you that sort of thing. Um, you know, or there's always a few people that are, are not real honest and they'll, they'll say, ah, I went up caught a hundred fish on this river. And it's like, no, you didn't, you know, it's like, <laughs> um, and you're just going to bring, that brings the hordes and then, and then everybody's disappointed and disillusioned. Like, that's no good here, you know? And then, and then they go home and then that's not good for anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it used responsibly. I think social media is awesome. You're right. Yeah. All right. Brings awareness to conservation Absolutely. or restoration, whatever, whatever it might be. Right. You have, okay, another, you have another yeah, one? Yep. Uh, this one's from at Dan LeCount, fly fishing up in Truckee. Ask him about pranks in the fly shop in the day when he was younger with <laughs> Andy Bunk and the Andy, rest of the old guard. Andy Burke, yeah. Burke. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Burke. 
I can't see very well. <laughs> yeah, the early days was kind of a rough crew. <laughs> Probably a lot of those pranks I really can't bring to life. Okay, come on. We, we can do an explicit episode. Yeah. We're, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. No, I, I can't. It's funny. I mean, it's all the thing, little things, you know, like we used to pitch quarters against the wall and things were slow, you know, pitch quarters, make a little extra money, and then a boss would come down and get all. We're going to need down. some dirt now. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty PC there, buddy. Yeah, it was, yeah. I'm trying to remember. Um, ah, geez. Yeah, did you guys pants anybody or any, do anything like that? No, but there was one episode where someone who was sans clothes at the moment jumped on another person's back <laughs> and came down the stairs and just as much to the shock of the customers that were in the shop. <laughs> um, other than that, I don't. There was a lot of little stuff, but I, it's hard to pull back. <laughs> um. You get, is that the? Uh, I'm looking. I think so. Because I want to take it to to travel. Mm, okay. I want to take it to the travel industry, and um, yeah, obviously, it mentioned we're good. It huh? mentioned uh, nobody knows more about Alaska or Chile than than you. And when maybe talk about what, what, your first experience sure. doing that, and then because um, it'll lead into some questions that I have in right. regards to trout. You know, I mean, you, you see trout react different ways throughout the world yeah in new zealand new Mm. New zealand's a good example sure you know you're stalking Mm. and hunting and you're you know if you spook that big fish there's not a chance of getting it right well i mean he's green beret trained so (laughs) (laughs) that's true there's that yeah but then in like northern california you can potentially spook a big fish in fact out of hiding or something and still go still catch it catch it Uh, exactly no you're exactly right and so yeah, in fact, it, real quick segue, I remember the first time I went to New Zealand, that exact thing happened because I'm used to Northern California fishing, and and the guide put me on about a five-pound rainbow, and I said, well, that's a nice fish, you know, and put a dry on it, perfect cast, came right up to it, like pushed the water and refused. Mm-hmm. But, oh, man, I almost had I started to cast. The guide grabbed my hand and said, no, 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 don't show him that fly again. <laughs> it's like, come on, he almost ate it. I'm going to – he said, all right, mate, just cast it away. So I made a cast, another perfect cast. And the fish just sunk to the bottom and sat Whoa. there like a sucker. It's like, that was a perfect cast. He said, so I learned, always listen to your guide. So That was an eye-opener for me that as was, well. Yeah. I, I've never seen anything like that. And I, I, it's I, like, really? I doubt you will anywhere else in <laughs> no, the world. No, I don't think so. Know? I haven't seen it really anywhere else. <laughs> but, but yeah, Alaska, back in the 80s when I first started fishing, it was incredible because it was still new, right? The fly fishing industry in Alaska was new. And so there were just a few lodges were starting to come up, and, and they were still like half- spin fishing, half fly fishing. And uh, the Copper River back then got uh, instituted as the first catch and release, you know, trout river in Alaska. And it was, so those things were just starting to happen. And I remember from that memories, that first trip, one was on the Kulik river, which is now super heavily fished, but it's a little, little stream between two lakes. And it's just ridiculously loaded with rainbows. And so in there fishing, I was just, this is amazing. <laughs> Everything like this before you're catching 18 to 24 inches, like right and left. And then I, I felt something. I looked around, and there was about an 800-pound brown bear oh, about 20 feet behind me. And oh, I went, Jesus. I'm dead. I, I just lay down and died. <laughs> and I didn't know that, you know, these were park bears. And, and now that is, they're cool. You know, they, but they don't care anything about people. But I didn't know that. And my first experience, and so um, I, you know, and just, of course, it just looked at me for about 30 seconds. And I just slowly, the years were ticking off my life. And <laughs> I thought, maybe I can swim in my waders across the stream. And, and then I just wandered off. But I have a lot of sympathy for people now who are 
first time to Alaska, and they said, there's so many bears. What do we do? Do we carry a gun? It's like, no, don't carry a gun. <laughs> it's like, they're fine. They don't care about you, you know, and in the in the national parks. Anyway. I mean, outside, that's a different story. But but I remember that. It was an experience. And I remember one day on the Tularic River, which is uh, used to be incredible trout fishing, still is to some extent, but we we landed a float plane on the, on the pond, and we got out. And as soon as the waves were dissipated from the pontoons, we noticed there was other waves. It's like, what are those? And we thought, those are fish just coming in, and, and it's not that big of a stream, just coming in waves. I thought, it's are those silvers? This, this stream doesn't have silvers. And then realized those are trout, the oh, big giant Iliamna trout. Yeah. And they were, these fish were averaging about Smoke. eight or nine pounds. And you just cast out, oh, got another one. And we sat there and it was silly. Um, I don't know how many was fish this on between. Like flesh flies or that egg was, patterns? This was an egg patterns mice, mostly, mice, yeah. yeah. And so eggs and, and swinging some uh, egg second leeches was a big yeah. thing back then. Yep. And so we just cast ahead of the wakes, you know, and they would, and I mean, probably the single best day I've had before, I mean, there was nothing before, but since there, I mean, I don't know how many fish I caught between eight and 14 pounds, just giant rainbows. And I thought My it's God. always going to be like this, right? What and happened? I look back now and it's like, well, pressure, you know, I mean, in pressure. Alaska, huh. a lot, lot, I mean, it's this finite <laughs> resource and there's a whole lot more lodges and stuff and flat lodges stuff now. So the one thing about Alaska is it's not hard to catch big rainbows, but it, it, people are becoming, you know, their, their desires are changing. They'll say, well, you know, we want to catch rainbows with nobody else around. Right. And you can do it, but you do have to, you know, be have to kind of know what you're getting down to. And, you, you know, there's a lot of great choices in Alaska, but you have to know what they're really like. I mean, there may be something that you really don't like about this place that you'd love about that. Some guys only want a tent camp. Other guys want a really upscale lodge. And mm-hmm. But when it comes to fishing, um, it's a bit of a science um, Alaska fishing because there's different species and you have to be there at the right time, the right place, because you could be, you know, you might have two streams where you have silver salmon in, in the first part of September, but in this place they're old bricks mm-hmm. and this place they're you're right out of the ocean with sea lice. And so, you know, you have to be honest with people when you're selling, I was like, what do you really want? And I've been there so long. I can. I've been so many places in Alaska. I can give them what they want, but I have to know what they want first. And a lot of times, mm. people don't know, so they have to be kind of led through. It's like those are the options. And that's it's a seasonal thing too. It's I mean, you're talking so. about the runs of these salmon. I mean, it's they're not going to show up on September fifteenth every year, right? Close, it's, but but no, not <laughs> yeah. sometimes it'll be a week. And so yeah. going back to your point, you know, right? It, it, and, yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. And then trout, like in the Kulikulam area, so many of the fisheries for trophy trout, they're all lake rainbows that follow the salmon in. So those rivers in June, July, there's some good ones, but a lot of them are almost fishless, you know? I mean, amazing. so you have to be aware that, you know, come the second week in August, all of a sudden they flood with giant rainbows out of the, out of the lakes. Before that, there's a few residents, they're beautiful big fish, but so, but there's exceptions to that, you know, the, the, Kukoklik, for example, which is the upper Alagnac, it has big rainbows year round. And, and there are, you know, there are some of those rivers up there that are not like Anyak, stuff like that, that are not uh, integral with lakes. And so their fish are just like, we you know, trout around here. Mm-hmm. They're wild fish that live in one place all the time. And so it varies, but you have to know that because you don't want to be in a river that has almost no fish in July. You know, you want to be there in August when it's choked with fish. And right. so, I mean, there's a million different examples, but. I think that's know. one thing, a bucket list that I haven't done yet. And Chad, we should just get it out of the way but um <laughs> is to float from a lake through a river sure. into yeah. a lake back into the river you know and yeah. just catch fish all along the way i mean right. that's, awesome. that's, you'd have to employ so many different styles of fishing too that's what would you, be so cool about it right having a whole yeah. bunch yeah. of system uh, shooting head system yeah you know, dry line system awesome. you know it would be 
Yeah. And in what you the situation you mentioned it changes a lot too because typically in Alaska when you put it you you take a float plane to the lake and then you get out and get in the rafts and start down, typically the first you know several miles is going to be maybe just dollies and grayling. Mm-hmm. Probably usually for whatever reason there's often not rainbows there. And then you'll get farther down and you start hitting the first rainbows. Then the rainbows get heavy. And then towards the end of the trip you get into the it's fresh the sand. sand. Yeah. yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's it's a real progression. So you have to be ready for that. I mean you don't want to be up there. Don't tire yourself out right at the back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Catch an eight million dollar iron and exactly like, face yourself. <laughs> Sounds like a so, high quality problem. <laughs> yeah. It pretty much is. Yeah. <laughs> So of all, all your travels, what, what's been your favorite? I mean, we are talking about Alaska and Chile, but. And where does he still want to go? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's a, a question that will probably get me into trouble. <laughs> but honestly, I do tell people. I mean, you, you said earlier, I'm a trout guy. I mean, I love every kind. I love tarpon. I love everything you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But um, but probably if you put a gun in my head and said, you got one trip left, what are you going to do? I'm probably going to go to Chile. Um, wow. cause I just love everything about the experience. And if you said you want to uh, get one chance lesson, you want a glut on big rainbows. I go to Kemp jacket. No questions. Yeah, yeah. Most amazing trout fishing in the world. Right. Um, for what it is. Um, but then, you know, that some guys, they, I just want the biggest Well, you go to Jurassic Lake, you know, I mean, you're going to catch so many big fish. You're just going to get sick of it, you know? And so there's so many different things, but for me, I like the, I love the culture. I love the, the, the Patagonia. I love Patagonia. I love the people there. I love the style of the rivers and streams and the beauty of it. And cause it's spectacularly beautiful. Mm-hmm. People don't realize they think, Oh, Chile. Yeah. It's like down there somewhere. It's like, no, it's like Switzerland and right. you know, and, and all these things put together into one mm-hmm. place. And so, um, yeah, that'd probably be, and I love the style of fishing. So. How's that saying go? The the person who named Montana Big Sky Country never saw Patagonia. Yeah, so Patagonia, that's pretty true, right? And I love Montana. I go there every year to Montana, and I love that part of it. Right. So, yeah. I, when I think of Chile, I, and I, I've never been, never been down there, but I think of like something like it, it, here in Chico, like a little ditch off of a farm that's flowing mm-hmm. down this mm-hmm. way. And Montana's kind of like this, I, I guess, but that there'd be just big browns yeah. cruising around and all these different places and trout and all these different places that you really, is that? That's exactly right. Is that's, that how it is? That's what first, when I first went back there 25, 28 years ago, that's what first shocked me. It was like mm-hmm. fishing a little tiny little ditch, nothing thing. And there'd be a 20 inch brown in it. It's <laughs> wow. like, what? You know, there, should, there might be a bluegill or a squawfish back <laughs> home, you know, in that thing. It'd be these little ponds out in the middle of a dry field. It'd be a little pond about the size of this room a little skinny little thing. And it's like, where does the water come from? Number one. And why is it here? And it's green and nasty looking. You cast it. There's another 20 inch brown. It's like, how does it get here? You know, and then you start realizing there's a lot of subterranean channel. Anyway, it's, it is what you say is very accurate. And I love catching big fish in small water. And in Chile, there's a, a lot of that. There's a lot of little tiny little spring creeks and, and, and also little small uh, freestone streams and stuff that, they're just full of surprises. It's like, whoa, what are you doing in here? You know, and <laughs> and and I love that. It's, it really spins my wheels. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. And there's big big water fishing, which is sure. spectacular. Sure. Um, but I do like walk wading small water for big fish. And, yeah. hmm. What about pound for pound on uh, uh, fighting as a trout goes for? Oh, as a trout yeah. trout goes. Yeah. Um, I, I think I still, you know, for trout, still rainbows. I mean, but uh, look, look, whereabouts in the world? Oh, oh, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting answer. Um, probably shock a lot of people, but in Alberta, Canada, I've heard about um, these fish. Yeah. There's there's a, a couple rivers up there, one river in particular that, um, it's 
ridiculous. I mean, I've been like spooled by 17 inch rainbows. They remind me of, um, um, when I see pictures of them, they remind me of our Valley steelhead. Yeah. Little torpedoes, yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. and there's no real reason, like the one river I'm thinking about, there's no reason for them to be that strong. I mean, they got great food and easy life and stuff, but I mean, a lot of fish have that and they're Kamloop strains. They, there's a, the strain, there's a Kamloop steelhead. Apparently that's what they tell me. Kamloop steelhead mix. Hmm. Maybe that has something to do with it, but it, it's got to be more than that. I think it's the quality of the water because one of the in that same place we send people, they have these spring ponds where they routinely catch rainbows, camloops, you know, high twenties to high thirties inch range, and 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 it's not that big of ponds, and and these are just they they put them in there as little fingerlings, you know. So and the the you talk to the the biologists, and they said perfect water, man. That's <laughs> all that's that's happening here. Mm-hmm. Perfect water pH is perfect. It's got all the bugs, all the food, but a lot of places have that. And a big fish is 22 inches. You know, these places, they grow giant fish and he says water. It's all about mm. the water. So anyway, but the stream, I've never seen rainbows fight like that. It's crazy. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what are it's you shocking. How are you catching them? Um, mostly with just swinging you know, nymphs or you can yeah, a lot of dry fly fishing. You know, dry you know, flies? Yeah, a lot, okay. just a lot of hatches. So That's cool. mayflies, caddis, and, and nymphs are ridiculously effective a lot of times, yeah, but yeah. but they'll eat dries. And so, and it's just, I mean, I was shocked. It's like, what is with these fish? You know, you get you're, you're down well in your back, and you fish, see the fish jump down there. It's like that can't be my fish. Mm. <laughs> I'm just getting spooled by a you know an average size rainbow. And so, yeah, so that's that's probably the hottest rainbows I've ever seen. Chet. Chad's uh, 2019 is going to be the year of the brown for, for oh, Chad. Oh, cool. Mm. He's, uh, he's, Browns I'm going to try top. just California, though. Yeah, That's yeah. my challenge. You'll love Chile when you go. It's and, Brown Trout yeah. City. But. Where uh, where would you recommend he to go for a for, for Browns? Well, let's brown. answer that one offline. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> come I might on come back now. to that responsibility issue. <laughs> back to that whole pressure thing. Yeah. <laughs> come on. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the bonus content. Yeah. <laughs> Download that for two hundred dollars. <laughs> have you been to? Uh, have you fished for the Sea Run Browns? Oh yeah, down many there? times. Yeah, they're great. It's it, again, it's a cultural experience because yeah. you're with these, these amazing lodges with these amazing people, and it is by far like the Rio Grande where we put people is the by far the best sea trout fishing in the world. It's, we, a lot of our clientele are come from Great Britain and Scotland because that's where a lot of sea trout fishing started and was popular. But for them, they get on the front of the paper if they catch a six-pounder there now, you know. And so they come to the Rio Grande where the fish average eight or ten pounds, and there's a lot of them, and they, they're in heaven. And so it's great swing fishing. It's all, pretty much all you do, and it's a great grabbing. It's interesting. I tell people, you know, don't – just because we've done these studies on this river and we realize that in the peak of the run there may be three to five, 600 fish in a pool, and this river is not that big. Don't think you're just going to hammer on them. They're obviously not very aggressive fish to a fly because a good, good day is six fish. That's You killed them if you got six fish. Wow. And an average day is, you know, more like three or four fish. And they're beautiful, big, giant, brown. They're great fish. But they're not – you know, they're, they, they're just not that grabby most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, – but, but I like that because that means you remember every fish you catch. That's right. Everyone mm-hmm. is, a, is something you're never going to forget, and you appreciate every fish. So – yeah, it's very popular. When you walk in with, do you carry a nymph rod and a dry rod? No, just one rod. One rod. One rod. Yeah, I, I'm always nervous. What if I break this rod? But mm-hmm. I hate the discomfort and the, the just the inconvenience of having another rod tucked on me somewhere. So you'll just re re rig. Yep. Yep. Okay. Same thing like the indicators. I started to say. I don't slide indicators, but I use yeah. have a set length of tippet yeah. below my. That's how I am. That okay. Yeah. And then what line and and 
re, what rod are you running with the inline? Uh, I love Winston rods, so I love B3X. The new, the new, the new ones, the Pures and stuff are great. Is I love that's my style of rod. Mm-hmm. They're not slow anymore, but they're slower than some other rods. But More I medium. love that style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a great rod too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, and then um, yeah, line line. I like the new amplitudes. Um, I do a lot of like in the lower sack, a lot of long drifts, you know, you cast cause I've weighed mm-hmm. and so I'll cast and then maybe feed 50, 60, 70 feet of line on the nymph on the nymph because you put your fly in so many in front of so many more fish that way. And that thing feeds like crazy, just effortless to feed. And plus I can't wear it out. I mean, most lines, they take a beat and I, I wear out lines pretty mm-hmm. fast, but yeah. I, I can't wear that thing out. It's really tough. So when you're fishing a six weight, most of the time, yeah. yeah. I, my favorite rod overall is a five. But on the lower sack, I do fish a six a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nine and a half or a nine nine footer. Yep. Nine nine. Yeah, I'm not nine and a half have their real advantages, but just don't like them as well. Yeah. Just don't like the way they feel. But they, I mean, for mending line, they're awesome. So. Have you? Um, one thing I've noticed because I've only been fishing for like three years now, and one thing I've noticed is this how many packs I've gone through to figure out like what oh, works yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what. What's your what's been your like gear evolution? Your your what did you start with and what did you end up with and how long have you been fishing that? that oh, absolutely. That system? Yeah, as a kid, I started with an Arctic Trail, you know, because I was killing everything mm-hmm. and I put them in there and they'd come out at the end of the day all mottled and horrible looking <laughs> and I'd throw them away probably. But then I went to a vest, you know, and wore a vest for mm-hmm. many many years. Used a, a Columbia Calama vest, the shorty mm-hmm. was the classic back then. Mm-hmm. I used wore that for years. Then, because I used to guide uh, Fall River so much, and you'd have to walk like 100 yards with car batteries in each hand, I screwed up my neck. And so wearing the, a vest on my neck doesn't work. So I went to hip packs. Mm-hmm. And I've gone through several different hip packs over the years. I'm currently using a, an Umqua hip pack. And I do like the fact it's got an intro, like a frame that holds it in place and away from you. And it's got a lot of – it's got a, a rain jacket uh, straps underneath, which if I'm in, the, if I'm in Montana, you may be 80 degrees when you leave the car in the yeah. morning, but you may need that rain jacket. So it's really convenient. It has, this has everything I need in it. So, but I've used a lot of hip packs. I, I, I like them all, but some have more features that I like. So. And is it a dry bag or no? No, no, it's not. Okay. No. I love dry bags while I'm floating and stuff, but yeah. yeah, I don't really, I mean, I, it's a good question. And the answer is I get my stuff wet. <laughs> <laughs> or I and just then, hitch it way up. And you, uh, you tuck the, you tuck the net behind you. Not a net guy. Not a net. Not a net okay. guy. No, never nice. been a net guy. I just I don't. I, there's times when I mean, you're trying to land a big fish, just for the fish's sake, it's a good idea. Right. But from right. a guiding standpoint, I love nets. I mean, I, I totally, I totally liked what they offer the, the angler and stuff like that. Just for me, I, I don't like another thing hanging off me. And I've learned to be very gentle with fish, keep them in the water mm-hmm. as much as I can. And, mm-hmm. and you can do it. But to be honest, when you're first starting, and that's a probably a good idea. Absolutely. You know, because you're going to mishandle that fish because you haven't had a lot of experience. So you're going to squeeze it. You're going to hold it up too long, whatever it is. So nets are good. But I think at a certain point, you, a lot of guys make a choice. I'm going to keep holding it, and I'm not going to use it anymore. You know, so. Interesting. What about travel tips? Do you have, I know you could – You've done this so many times and you probably have a place to reference, but do you have a specific travel tip that you'd like to throw at our listeners? Um, um, yeah, Pay your deposit when, when <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. That's a good one. Um, you know, just do your research and, and like trusting you. Like I needed to trust the guy on that New Zealand trout. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you'll find that if you're going to not do it yourself, not do a DIY trip, you're going to, you're going to hire somebody or you're going to use it like our services are free here at the fly shop. But if you're going to use somebody like that, find somebody you trust and stay with them, trust them. And if he, if he's really wants your best interest in mind, 
and he's experienced, he's going to do a great job for you that you can't mm-hmm. do on your own. And like one, probably one of the best things Mike Mitchellock ever did was not commission us. Um, so from a, from a, a client standpoint, I don't care whether I sell him a $2,000 trip or a $10,000 trip. I want to make sure he's got the right trip. Yeah. I mean, this doesn't mean it was to me, right? I just mm-hmm. want to make sure. And so that is a, a good thing. So if you can find an agent that, that really has done a lot of stuff, been around and he can listen to you. Um, if you like, just, you know, find a guy that can listen to you, not just talking over you all the time, you know, so you, cause he, he needs to hear what you want sure. and then he needs to, so you, it's kind of like a, a counselor, right? Yeah. <laughs> you so need a guy that, <laughs> what are some maybe like qualifying questions? If you're going to, if you're going to shop around for a trip, yeah. like what are your, what are your three questions you should always ask? One of the most telling ones, and it can be embarrassing if your agent has them is like, have you been there? You know, I mean, personally, personally, have mm-hmm. you been there? Do you know what, you, you mm-hmm. know, the little, you know, idiosyncrasies and, um, and you know, along with that, how many times have you been there? You know? And so, mm-hmm. so, you know, what, you know, and, and yeah, things like that are qualifiers. Um, yeah, just, 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 you know, just, just do, you know, do as much of the research as you can come I this, I see this a lot. A guy will come up and he'll, he'll call me up and he'll have, he'll say, I've been researching this like crazy online. And I think I want one of these three lodges, one of these three river lodges. And I said, all right. So, you know, I know about, it. I know them all. And so, so I'll ask, you know, ask him why, you know, what, what drew you to these, that sort of thing. And, and probably 50% of the time, one of those lodges is in fact exactly what he wants. He just a little need a little fine tuning, you know, 50% of the time they weren't even close. He had a false understanding of what those lodges offered. They were great world-class lodges, but it wasn't what he wanted. And so that's such a key thing is to, is to kind of know and talk to someone who's been there and done it, really know what you want and, and be able to ask any, you know, like does their Wi-Fi work? You know, does, you know, do they have yogurt? Do they anything? You know, if you've been there, it's my job to be there and know all the details um, you should be able to ask him anything. And if he doesn't know, he should be able to turn around to somebody else in the office and get it or say, hey, I'll call you back in an hour. I got, I don't know that, but I'll find out, you know, and if some uh, obscure question is like, I'll get it for you. Um, so no, those are all good points. What, what do you think the hot spot is right now? Oh, it, the hot spot's been Kim Jack for quite a while. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, we can't, it's not a particularly easy place to get really. Um, but yes, we're in Russia. Yeah. 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 But yet we, I mean, we sell out every year. It's like the hottest, hottest spot is, is probably in Mexico, uh, um, the ESB lodge we have. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, For it's just tarpon and tarpon, permit and bonefish. Uh, snook. Yeah. yeah I mean, snook, I, yeah. it's a phenomenon. There's nothing like it. It's yeah. we're, we're booked, you know, years in advance. Mm-hmm. And so, wow. um, but, but overall just, you know, as, as a, an area goes, Kamchatka. I mean, the jungle's hot, and a lot, of, a lot of the things are hot, but a lot of places are really stable, really good, like Alaska, Chile, Argentina. I mean, it's like they're, they're, there's a reason they're so you know popular, mm-hmm. but there are places that, like you're alluding, that are just hot. Right. And yeah, and Kamchatka is. What, what's a destination trip to like that that place cost roughly like range? Kamchatka, ten grand, you know, yeah. in and out. It's just and for a, like ten days or no, it's a week. Week. It's a week trip. Yeah, yeah. So it's not inexpensive. Yeah. Um, I remember when it was, it felt like it was five. Four. Yeah. yeah. When we first started, it was four. Yeah. yeah. And so, but we've upped our game tremendously back then when it was $4,000, you were eating some old merganser head <laughs> in a bowl of soup and <laughs> calling it good, you know? Yeah. And, and now we've got nice chefs, good food. I mean, it's still a wilderness experience, a wilderness. Wilderness. Most of our fisheries don't get more than 
50 rods a day, a year on them, a season. I mean, uh, not very many rods, you know, and some of them get six or 12 a year. I mean, it's still untouched. And we're fishing, you know, a dozen, a dozen rivers and there's a thousand rivers that nobody's ever fished before, you know, so. That's incredible. It's, it's we, an adventure. We've got uh, quite a few listeners in the Bay and if, do they, how proficient do you need to be to get a trip like that, you know, going? Like, do you. How do good you, of an angler? Yeah. Oh, you yeah. don't have to be, I know, I've. I've been there with guys who could not fish, and the fishing is just that good. You know, you do have to be able to cast. I mean, not very well, but but if you can cast thirty feet proficiently, yeah. you're in. So it's pretty approachable. Then. Oh, very That's approachable. Cool. Yeah. Well, and then is it the tactics wise? Is it is it indos? Are you swinging flies? Um, yeah, it's usually it's it's two different things. A lot of the other places are extremely good mouse fishing, and so mm. a lot of times you'll fish. Once you get a taste for that, you don't want to do anything else. Just skating mice. Just skating mice. Whoa, and so you can do I'm that all that. day long, every day. And so it's really exciting. That'd That's one thing that really makes Kamchatka, Kamchatka. Um, but then a couple of the rivers, like this uh, Savan and Japonava, are big fish fisheries. And you absolutely get fish on mice, but if you want to up your odds of getting more fish per day, that means more big fish, you swing streamers. Streamers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so you just know that going in. A, a great day on the Japonava, maybe six or ten fish, but... You know, that's probably one of the best places in the world to get a 30-plus-inch rainbow and, and you know, fly swinging. And so, um, or you trade that in for 30 or 40, you know, 20-inch rainbows on a mouse yeah. on a small stream somewhere. And even if you don't know how to swing or, you know, do a spay cast, you can pick it up Oh yeah, and there's, pretty, there's, pretty quickly. Absolutely. Well, that's the great thing about these you guys. You get there on day you one. You have and the get professionals the, there yeah, to yeah. really dial you in. I mean, yeah. even before and during, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. and yeah. even after. I mean, you're I mean, right on you. And yeah, this I, isn't the Henry's fork, you know, so I mean. Right. And this, this tackle, too, like one of the greatest inventions ever for, for Kamchatka was the, 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 the extreme belly, front belly lines. You know, Rio came out with outbounds and now the Titans from San Vanglers. Those things, you can put those in the hands of a neophyte and throw a big wind-resistant mouse, no problem. Yeah. Whereas the old Wakeford floaters we used, it was a problem. Um, if the guy wasn't a pretty skilled angler, he struggled. But tackle like that has just made it effortless. So I think that's one of the biggest um, pieces to a good – to creating a good cast is having a balanced outfit. Absolutely. Dude, you know, the I mean, line, it's, right? it's, it's so key. I yeah. mean, even 100%. getting a new line is like having a whole new setup. Oh, absolutely. So I've always emphasized a little bit overweighting on, and it depends on the rod and everything, but right. I mean, it's, it makes a big difference. Oh, it's a huge difference. Lines and, huge. And more lines anymore come overweighted, right. Right? right? And I've always, you're exactly right. I've, for 40 years, I've been preaching to people, you know, if you don't, if you have extremely limited, limited budget, go down to Walmart and get a cheap rod, but, Spend 50, 60 bucks, get Thanks, a good line right. because the opposite, you can get the best rod in the world. You put a, you put a $15, <laughs> you know, right. level line, you right. will quit the sport. So, <laughs> when so. I think of Kamchatka, I think of going back in time on our California, Oregon coastline yeah, and, absolutely. and catching steelhead. That's yeah. what I think. Just open water. Untouched. Yeah. Nobody, nobody on it. Exactly. <laughs> Not just like I being the t- first guy. I'm kind of glad that I just started three years ago. So I, don't, I don't know what that's like, so it's you know I don't I don't look back at yesteryear and go longingly. Yeah. <laughs> no, and there's not very many places in the world like that anymore, right? Yeah. I mean, especially the cold water world. The jungle is a huge new thing, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of jungle, but mm-hmm. but um, in the cold water world, mm-hmm. yeah, this Kamchatka is one of the last best. Yeah, mm-hmm. there is so. right. 
Well, Mike, this has been an amazing uh, podcast and experience talking with you. We appreciate you coming down here. My pleasure. Um, How can the folks get a hold of you guys? I know it's pretty easy, but I'm going to test you right now. Yeah, sure. So just give us a call, (laughs) 800-669-3474. Website. Website, you just call me, mercer at theflyshop.com. Or if you want to go just the website, that was my email. Um, Just go, um, you can go info at theflyshop, but go um, just Google the fly shop. And it's use the first one. And here's a on, big so. test. What's your Instagram handle? I do not do social media really, so I don't have it's, one. <laughs> it's the fly shop all all underscores Thank where, you. where you'd put spaces in Thank at you. the fly shop all underscores. Well, if you if you guys have an opening to Kamchatka and two, uh-huh. and Chad and I would love to come do an on on the water with maybe. Oh, you listen, that would be fun. Nick's huh? trying to get a twenty twenty thousand dollar free trip. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> you got to ask, right? Yeah. <laughs> No, just <laughs> just an on the water uh, on the Sacramento River would be a fun time with you. Absolutely, or okay. or Kamchatka, well, either way, <laughs> or maybe yeah. or maybe Bali Baka. <laughs> yeah, there's that. There you go. <laughs> Meet us halfway, Mike. Come yeah, on. yeah, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, do we have anything else? No. Okay, well, I want to. There's a lot, but yeah, I mean, he'd be here we, all night. So you know how we've been we've been talking about um, the the beta for the the flows app being done pretty soon. We've been talking about that for like the last three months. But it's actually getting really close. It's going to probably drop in the next 10 days. So we can still take uh, beta testers. we got about 120 people signed up right now. If you still want to get on before we, we shut that program down and start beta testing this thing with the, uh, the existing folks, let us know. Uh, you can go to the website at the bottom. There's a beta list uh, email sign up. Or you can send us a email at fishon at barbless.co or direct message us on our Instagram at barbless.co. Follow Nick at NorCalFlyGuy. Follow me at Chad Alderson. What else? We're at the show. We're gonna oh, yeah, yeah. Show. We're going to be at the show. Thank come, you for reminding come me. Come by and <laughs> say hi. Yeah, so we're going to be on Friday. We're going to be in the Scott booth with um, Matt Callies and, and his team. Uh, we're going to be kind of doing these impromptu 15, 10, 15 minute um, drop in episodes. It's going to be a, a, a hodgepodge of stuff, more of a montage of the show from the, the next week. We'll publish everything. On Saturday, we're going to be in the uh, the Cast Hope booth with Ryan with uh, Ryan Johnson and, and Hogan Brown. Uh, stop by the Cast Hope booth and uh, give us a holler. And what else? We have gear coming too pretty soon, huh? Some hats. Hats, and, hats. And- hats are in March, they're on order. We've been getting a lot of requests for hats, so yeah, we we posted one little little um, teaser on our on our what do you call it Instagram yeah. story and and folks like Mike here, you, you know, grab if you're listening, grab your dad's phone or your mom's phone and hit the subscribe button. I'll help them find that podcast app because that's one of the biggest yeah. Boom. biggest things that I, I hear people. How do I find you? How do I find that? Yeah. And, and it just being tech savvy, you know, some yeah. people aren't used to that, right? But yeah, the the podcast app is easy to find on an Apple phone. And, and there's actually one other thing I just remembered. Do you do you remember what it is? No. Oh, it's a new the equipment new kit. Yeah, so we we've, we've got a new um, mixing board coming in for the podcast. So it's actually going to open up uh, the ability for us to do re- more remote based interviews. So we'll bring in other guests. We want to start marching down California. Uh, we know that there's a, a big um, population of folks in the Bay that listen to us. Uh, thank you, first of all, for listening. We're going to try and you know do more stuff delta wise, and then down in the uh, all the way down, yeah. basically to uh, you know Mexico. Nice. 
Thanks yeah. again, Mike. You've oh, uh, you inspired my creativity growing up with fly time, and, and uh, I appreciate all you've done for the sport. Thank you. Very kind. Yeah, thanks for coming, yeah. in, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, Fish Bio and Amp.Bill. Fish Bio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, Fish Bio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.bill.